The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Even in times of great turbulence, some things are still reliable. With all the upheaval in politics, social issues and ongoing health crises, one can still rely on DC Comics turning out disappointing crap. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and marble, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's discussion looks at the best and worst films of 2020, with my guests Anthony Malone and Chris Arnsby. You join us in my secret cavern under the Hollywood sign. Hello, lads. Hello, Jeremy. Hello. Well, it's been uh, a challenging year. Um, Thank you for coming for your annual review. That's okay. Um, It's it's an honour to be here. Good. It should be. And a relief. Yes, I know you've missed me. Who are you again? I'm the darkness that resides in us all. Yes, I'd had my suspicions. And I'm here to talk to you about uh, your habits over the last year. No, not those. Oh, God. The less disgusting ones. Um, (laughs) I have, during lockdown, been able to actually watch the regulation number of films for the year. uh, 52. Blimey. Right. But uh, I see by the lists that you've sent me that uh, you've been somewhat le- neglectful of your obligations. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's just just possible that we had other things on our minds, to be honest with you, Jeremy. Um, uh, 52 films. Were there 52 films released over the last 12-month period? Um, well, I managed. I think 30 of them yeah. were by Adam Sandler. Well, before we start on my list of the high and low lights. Uh, let's go through a few of the things that um, you saw that uh, that aren't included. So, um, I think we all saw Bill and Ted face the music. Yeah. What were your thoughts? It, <laughs> nothing particularly profound. I think um, I kind I kind of went into it hoping that they wouldn't mess it up, and they didn't mess it up. Um, there's one genuinely good laugh, which is the bit when they have to escape from a house without remembering how they escape from the house. I thought that bit was fantastic, but for the rest of it, no, it was it was amiable enough. I liked it, but nothing earth-shattering, I don't think. Yeah, I came to it as a, a Bill and Ted uh, virgin. Oh. I, I to this day I haven't seen the first two films. I'm aware of their uh, of, of the basic premise and the uh, and the suspiciously familiar telephone box and all of that. Um, but so, so my overriding impression was that it was a, a real breath of fresh air and of and um, in the time in which it was released, um, I, I wanted a bit of escapist, silly, 
lightweight, um, optimistic uh, fun. And I certainly got that. I thought the two actresses in it were excellent. Um, they were really, really um, great at just implying... The daughters. Uh, Bill and Ted. Yeah, the, the daughters. And um, um, So it's not normally... I'm not a big Bill and Ted guy. Um, I probably wouldn't have normally seen it, but I was so desperate for a bit of... Um, cinematic fun that I took the plunge and lo and behold it's a perfectly amenable um, nicely warm experience which is exactly what was needed at the time so it gets a kind of bit more of a free pass uh, on that basis I think hmm. I, I enjoyed it a lot um, I agree absolutely that it was a very necessary breath of fresh air something very upbeat and positive and likeable uh, because even the few blockbusters we've had over the last year have been dour or unwieldy or full-on incompetent yeah so to have what would have been a major release like this to be a very fleet hour and 35 minutes to be absolutely packed with stuff but still feel very lightweight to be very positive to be very warm and charming for there to not really be a villain of any kind it's just mm. you know everyone everyone is motivated by the best of concerns and trying to do the right thing and uh, the the ultimate message i thought was very contemporary and very positive and i i really liked it a great deal i watched the first two films uh beforehand and i think this might beat both of them and wow. the first two are very mm. good but um, they are a, a little bit shallow, whereas this is trying to be sort of a, a bit more meaningful, and it actually works. Um, so it, it only just fell outside my list of the top ten. Uh, one film that uh, I didn't see, but you both have, is Greenland. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> Chris, you saw it? Yes, I did. Um I remember watching the trailer several times and kind of uh, watching it like sort of you know, watching it rubbing my thighs in anticipation because it's a film that absolutely <laughs> should be you know it's it, horribly expensive death from above it it should act absolutely be a film that's right up my street again didn't do a great deal for me outside of the the early sequences where you get the first sort of impact on Florida. That all is, is all handled very, very well. But the bulk of the film is just a series of increasingly boring car drives. You know, they're all yes. split up. They're all driving around in cars. And there was about, I was about halfway through the film and I suddenly realised that this must have been an incredibly... It, it looks really cheap because it's just night shoot with one character in a car, cut to night shoot with a character in a different car. And it's just... The middle sections are just really, really boring. It's quite surprising. Uh, absolutely. I think um, uh, the moment where, for me, it it turned from a vaguely interesting, plausible um, end-of-the-world film to um, a, a ridiculous piece of pulp nonsense was where um, the president hijacks TV screens to alert that there is an exclusive um, uh, escape ship that you know you, if your name is on this list you have now got a um, uh, 
uh, you know, please go to this destination so you can get onto the flight. So this is broadcast to the entire country, which would obviously inspire mass panic. Mm. Um, and it's not it's not that that particular premise, which I found spectacularly unconvincing, it's the fact that that the then current administration would have the the know how the the wherewithal to do any of this, um, because a lot of the films that we're going to discuss on this podcast today are obviously released when um, the Orange Muppet was still in in charge, and so that gives a, a sort of it overshadows these films and it's we have to kind of consider them in and a lot under that context so greenland is very self-serious um it's definitely car chase plus frame store um and not much else really Mm. so i i i agree i thought i i watch these things um probably less avidly than you do chris but i do like i do like a bit of uh, cgi mayhem um I, I I sent around to our little um, group of friends recently the uh, link to the trailer of 2012, which I stumbled across um, by accident and, and ended up watching because I have no life. And I was amazed at just the, the scale of the destruction depicted in that film. Um, and it's you don't feel any horror. You don't feel that oh my god, this this is actually a terrifying thing to witness. What you're thinking is that this was a film released just as CGI became uh, cheap enough to be put into a mass film, and they're going hog wild with it, and it's completely ODing. So we live in a time now in which basically CGI is meant to be as as far as possible invisible, um, even when it's in a big Marvel film. Um, Greenland is. I wanted more pulpy fun, yeah. um, and it didn't really deliver. But what do you expect when it's got Gerard Butler in it? <laughs> well, that's you know? true. It's always going to have. A, it's it's always going to try and be a more serious film, I guess, because that's sometimes I get the impression that that's the kind of actor he wants to be. Yeah, he's in um, Coriolanus with Ray Fiennes. He's really good in that. Um, but that's over fifteen years ago now. Um, and I find him, I find him a more of a more personable person in interviews. Um, I I don't find him a very engaging actor at all. I'm afraid I find him uh, cardboardy and uncharismatic. Um, you, you know, as always, I I find myself asking, what if Jason Statham was in this film? Um, you know, just to give it an extra little twinkle in the eye. So Greenland was um, all right. Hmm. But there's better, better end of the world scenarios out there. Speaking of straight to video action stars, uh, Chris, you watched Color Out of Space with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my word! And uh, it looks fantastic. You know, the visual side of it is brilliant. It's a more, it's one of Nicolas Cage's more restrained performances, I think, by his standards. His his performance matches the tone of the material. I think it does. It does get a bit crazy later on, but it is in keeping with everything else. So that um, might be it. It might be that it doesn't stand out as much because it, it's more that it matches what everyone else is doing. I saw it right at the start of last year, um, and I don't really remember a huge amount of it. I remember it looked very very pretty. There's a lot of purple. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very, very, a very purple film. That's apparently mm. the colour out of space. 
Is this a straight adaptation of the H.P. Lovecraft story? I, More I believe or less. It's, I believe it's relatively straight. I mean, I, I saw it as well, um, and uh, it's updated, hmm. but um, it's otherwise, I think, uh, a pretty close adaptation. It's not. It's not even the first hmm. film version of the book. I think. Mm-hmm. Oh. But uh, yeah, I thought it was quite good. Um, Anthony, you watched Enola Holmes, a film I absolutely refused to watch. Well, um, I, I I concede other opinions are available. I loved Enola Holmes, and I loved it so much that in preparation for this um, this podcast, I did indeed um, see it again. It's too long. There's too much going on in it. Um, but I I was really surprised by this, and I came at this film. Um, liking Millie Bobby Brown in season one of Stranger Things but as I've said before I didn't particularly feel the need to actually see any more of Stranger Things after that Um, I saw her um, in Godzilla King of the Monsters in Mm. which she was extremely boring Um, I also unfortunately saw the the chat show circuit um, go bananas for Millie Bobby Brown and her doing her rapping on that. And that's pretty much when I went, oh, precocious child. Um, I I don't want to know. So I came into this thinking, this has great potential to be a disaster. But literally from the opening scenes when she's on her bike and she's talking to camera, that, that actress gets it spot on she is playing precocious but never gets slappable um it's always very charming and amusing um and uh, i think helena bonham carter's underused i think everyone would say that um and the the final message of it um i'm not going to spoil it but the last scene the last thing that that enola says to the camera um and again, in the context of just how dire the last year was, and uh, you know, and a need for optimism, I thought it was completely on point. If this is the sort of thing that's it's the younger generation talking to itself, I thought that was really spot on. So um, I'm always up for a bit of Henry Cavill as well. I thought he was totally miscast as Sherlock Holmes. Um, I can't but... imagine anyone less suited. <laughs> He's not playing Sherlock Holmes. You just got to accept it and go. He might be playing Sherlock Holmes, but in no ways he's playing Byron, basically. If you ask me, um, he's he's not playing a cocaine addicted, uh, uh, obsessive um, uh, detective at all. He's very very much playing Henry Cavill in Victorian London. Um, so I thought it was really great. I really think you should see it, Jeremy, and go in with it with a, an open mind. I thought that as adaptations of Sherlock Holmes go, it's up there with young Sherlock Holmes, definitely. Um, and of the recent sideways um, Holmes adaptations, I think Miss Sherlock is another one that's really good. Um, I'm not a Cumberbatch is that fan. The Japanese one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of that, yeah. Um, I've no particular interest really... in that, but. Yeah, that's re- that's a really interesting um, uh, adaptation, and I think unfortunately, what the I think the lead actress unfortunately is no longer with us. No. Um, but I was very surprised by this, and very pleased to hear that there's going to be a sequel. But mm. um, so yeah, happy to fly the flag for that one. I did start watching Elementary, the um, oh, yeah. the American version of Sherlock, and I actually found it to be significantly better than Sherlock. <laughs> Yeah, it's, oh, absolutely. It's much less Elementary was. 
Absolutely. It was the underdog. Everyone went, oh, there are two modern homes uh, versions, but it's the Yanks doing it, so what do they know about anything? Um, you're quite right, elementary. I mean, I've only seen one or two episodes of that, and it, it jumps off the screen as a better mm. adaptation. Um, but unfortunately for me, it's basically House. That you know, The Americans got their first with House, yeah. with the um, Sh- Sherlock Holmes in America in all but name. Um, so and, uh, yeah, I, I watched uh, the, I watched the first season and a half, and then sort of halfway through the second season, I thought, yeah, I yeah, I think I've got this now. It's yeah, it's, and like, that's enough for me. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's it's still good. It's still well made and well acted and everything, but it's not really going anywhere now, and the individual cases yeah. aren't particularly engaging. So, yeah. why did you refuse to watch Enola Holmes? Um, I was annoyed by the casting because it just seemed to completely ignore any uh, age gaps at all. That Helena Bonham Carter was too young to, to play Henry Cavill's mother, and Henry Cavill was too old to play um, Millie Bobby Brown's brother, and none of the ages seemed to match. And it's also directed by Harry Bradbeer, who is the director of Fleabag, and it seemed to lift a lot of the stylistic ticks from Fleabag, which really annoy me. Um, yes, I I watched the first episode of Fleabag and I thought it was quite poor, and I've not bothered watching yeah. anything else. I watched the first actually episode. I forgot that it was uh, directed by um, Mr. Fleabag, and you're absolutely right. There's a hell of a lot of uh, talking to the camera and metaness going on in Enola Holmes. I have I don't have a problem with the you know the whole breaking the fourth wall thing, but Fleabag seems to have been promoted, and no one seems to have corrected this as oh no one's ever thought of this before, no one's ever done this before. There were programs broadcast earlier that year on the BBC that were doing it. Gentleman Jack with Siran Jones. Well, also, Mar- Moran. Mar- yeah, but even even in a even in a more uh, dramatised setting, um, single camera rather than multi camera. Um, uh, Gentleman Jack was doing that with her turning to the camera and narrating to the camera, and but that was just a, a better written, more interesting series. Um, but I don't. I think necessarily. I mean, yeah. There's. I, I don't think that's the USP of Fleabag. I think the USP is that um, the personality cult around Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and 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 now her uh, her ascent in in America. And this is because they there's there's something about people connecting with her. And if you don't connect with her, you look straight through Fleabag, and there's absolutely not much there. Um, is, is this the same reason one... that James Corden has a career in America now? Yes, yes, yes. Um, that's one of the inexplicable um, Twilight Zone phenomena of our time. There's one interesting moment in Fleabag um, where, in this, I don't know if you've seen the second series, I binged nope. the lot in one day. So she, she gets the horn for a priest and... Um, and it's meant to be really sexy and funny and all of this rubbish. But he suddenly spots that she's talking to the camera and he goes, who are you constantly talking to? And it looks like there's an implication that he, he she's either talking to some sort of spiritual sidekick or, or he can, he somehow he somehow sees the fourth wallness of the series itself it's just one split second moment totally abandoned after that and that's when I went oh this could be interesting and then it just decided to go nowhere near it um, 
But anyway, we're not here to talk about the horrors of Fleabag. Enola Holmes definitely worth a watch. Gentleman Jack also did that exact same thing. And was broadcast. Oh, it did it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> the perils of podcasting with Jeremy. <laughs> the man who knew too much. Um, what else? Uh, Anthony, you saw uh, Borat's subsequent movie film. I did. Did you two see... There you see this? I did. So, Chris is shaking um, his head, which is really useful in an audio medium. <laughs> um, so... I was not, I'm not a big fan of um, Sasha Baron Cohen's brand of, of humour. I'm not um, expecting a dissertation-length response to my question, by the way. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I'd love to wax lyrical about this. I thought this was probably the best uh, of uh, his work so far because it's, it's much more clearly politicised. It also um, fails in all, all the same ways as his other stuff fails, which is that the stuff that he does um, just shows up... Um, points the finger at stupid people and says, look, they're stupid. Um, when actually a lot of the people on camera that he targets are just being perfectly nice and are just, are just being their normal selves. Um, uh, and the big moments, the big comedy moments in it, the shockeroo moments, the stuff that I personally don't like. I don't like all the... Um, I'm not even going to reference it. But, of course, the big um, um, star from this is, of course, Maria... Um, Bakalova. Bakalova, who's playing Tuta Sagdiev. Um, thank you. I love being uh, corrected for my pronunciation on these podcasts. It makes me feel so good about myself. Thank you. Yeah. This is like um, uh, Como constantly correcting Mayo's uh, grammar and pronunciation. Um, it's not patronizing at all, Jeremy. And uh, Maria is. I think um, you'll find it's pronounced patronizing. <laughs> all, all I'm trying to do is make you a better person. I think you're on on a hiding to nowhere there. I'm afraid <laughs> that ship has sailed. Um, so she's she's really good. If I'd been told that she was just straight out of drama school and done a couple of productions and that's it, I wouldn't have known any difference. I think she was uh, incredibly competent. Matches him um, uh, gag for gag. Um, I th I think the rave reviews are a bit odd, um, but the moment that I like the most in the film is right at the end of the film, where Borat uh, and her are both presenting um, to the camera, and he gives her a, a, a hug and says, you were amazing. And I thought that was a meta moment. Um, and I thought that was spot on brilliant. Um, but... Apart from that, I think a better review of this film will probably be in a few years' time, where we've got some distance from the context. Um, what did you think of it, Jeremy? Um, yes, I would generally agree with that. Um, I didn't find it as, la as laugh-out-loud funny as I think the first one was, I mean, because it was so unexpected. Um, but I think that the political refocusing is very much to its benefit, and the fact that they kind of had to to redraft what they were doing on the fly to incorporate the pandemic there are scenes that stick out as be as sort of going off in directions where you don't expect where he's in he's in lockdown with those two um those two fellas who are spouting conspiracy theories and and poorly advised medical advice 
But at one point, Borat says something you know, bluntly misogynist, and they actually stop and correct him and say, no, no, women are just as smart as men. Don't say that. I thought, well, that's interesting. That's sort of unexpected that you think, you'd think that they would also be sexist misogynist, and they're not. They're actually more aware in that area. And I thought, oh, these, these people are more complex than you would expect. And I think that kind of demonstration was... It made it feel more engaged by not just simplifying these less informed people to stereotypes. It was actually fleshing them out and putting them in in a, in a different context. Yeah, and you kind of got the sense that when they found the the woman who was going to look after uh, Tutor and, and whilst Borat went away and did things, it heads in a very different place to that which they expected because, of course, she's another one who comes out of this with flying colours and actually... Um, tries to to help this girl um, join the twenty first century, and um, uh, and and again, that's that's unusual for the waters in which um, uh, Sasha Barracona usually swims in. It's normally um, telling you someone's stupid, showing you that someone's stupid, and then everyone having a laugh. But in this case, it was actually a lot of people surprised us and went, "No, actually, there is goodness out there," and that benefited the the, the film. So, um, but it's not a film that makes you want to go and seek out further. I mean, he's been in some absolute stinkers. Um, uh, I mean, that film, wasn't he in The Brothers Grimm um, with Mark? Grimsby. Grimsby, that's it. Um, Yeah. Which is a shocker. Um, And actually, I prefer him when he's doing tiny little character roles. Well, he he was. um, I think he was Oscar nominated this year for the Trial of the Chicago Seven, in which he played Abby Hoffman, and he was very, very good indeed in that. It was much more of a a straight character role, a a humorous person, but um, in the dramatic scenes, he is very impressive. Yeah, he cropped up. One of his early dramatic roles was in Sweeney Todd with um, the Johnny Depp uh, oh, yes. musical version. Um, he's excellent in that. Um, I was really surprised. So, um, you know, I I love the intent of the film, um, and I I, you know, I, I think politically I, I'm, I agree with what it's trying to do, but it's it's not radically innovative and. Um, you know, we'll we'll see what he produces next. Uh, you also saw Tenet. Ah, yes. Uh, and did you guys see Tenet? I did. I know you and did, I, Jeremy. I, I, I did. I think my longest ever video review. Um, uh, you missed a trick. You should have. You should have filmed that and then run it backwards on YouTube. Chris, have you seen Tenet yet? I was under the impression that Christopher Nolan had told everyone not to see it unless they could go to see it in the <laughs> cinema. So I was just. I was being good. You're a Nolan fundamentalist. Well, I'm. I'm damn glad I didn't see it at the cinema. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was definitely one of his weakest films. Unfortunately. What, what about you, Jeremy? Give us. Give us the full um, lowdown. Well, as I said, my review is such that I actually made notes in advance of doing it to camera because normally I just do it off the top of my head. Um, but I was quite unimpressed by it overall. I think that it was far too interested in its own gimmick and its own machinery than actually telling a story and having characters and actually engaging the audience emotionally in any way. We're constantly told it's the end of the world. We're never actually 
there's there's no there's no show it's all tell mm. and there are some really nicely constructed action scenes i think the the car chase that we see forwards and then there's a fight and then we see it backwards although that was quite neatly done um but it's it's just ultimately it's all machinery what you're looking at mm. is just a swiss watch and i want i don't want to just look at a piece of machinery because it's a film but 2001 is a very cold film about machinery and it's revered by Nolan. But and yet... 2001 is an intellectual eminent. film about big ideas and Tenet does not have any big ideas attached to it. Uh, completely. Um, and I think I bored you to death in a previous podcast with yes. my ob- objection. Actually, that's just a blanket statement really, isn't it? <laughs> which, which specific example did you mean? <laughs> My specific boringness um, is the the corridor fight scene, where I'm not sure if I want to go into details on this because Chris hasn't seen it yet. Um, but oh, for yes, me, yeah. Yeah. that um, that could have done with a proper storyteller behind the scenes. And um, Chris Nolan is maybe a great in the visual medium, but my God. Um, this this story. Someone did say that it's it is a Bond film. Um, it's just that Spectre has discovered um, reverse time technology, and that's okay. Uh, well, um, yeah, but James Bond is a very engaging, charismatic character, and despite the best efforts of John David Washington, he has no character to 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 grapple with. He's I mean, if you've seen Black Clansman. He's great in that. Here, his character is deliberately a totally blank slate. He doesn't have a name, he doesn't have a background or anything, and he's got nothing to work with. Yeah. Um, he must have looked at that script and gone, oh, who is this guy? Um, I mean, that's, that is, in, in effect, the point of the script right at the end. He says, I'm, I'm the protagonist. Um, a really, really odd, oddly written piece of work that feels like it's been under the bed for about a decade since Christopher Nolan watched Red Dwarf backwards and then <laughs> saw a Heineken ad- advert on um, on TV and went, why don't I just um, apply this to uh, my the James Bond film that I keep on saying I'm going to be uh, trying to do? I thought, um, what else did I think? I thought Branagh was, was good. I, I thought he was mm. a nasty piece of work in this film, uh, although... When Branagh has a habit of being a little bit hammy at times, not least in his, his Agatha Christie films. Um, but and Elizabeth Debricki is playing almost exactly the same character that she plays in The Night Manager. Um, we can't talk about this film without talking about the sound design. Jeremy, do you want to... This has the worst sound design of any major film <clears throat> I've ever seen. It's absolutely... It's, in, it's incompetent and it should not have been released in this form. It's mm. shockingly bad. There are several scenes where you cannot hear the dialogue properly, where it's important exposition. The sound the sound of the background noise is mixed far too loud. It's absolutely disgraceful. And Nolan has said it's supposed to be like that, and that just makes me think, well, then you don't know what you're doing. Is he deaf? Um, and this isn't about um, a big, tumultuous uh, scene which is very noisy, that's in which... You- you can't hear anything there's a particular um there's a, a dinner scene between two characters um and the dialogue is inaudible um and they're all doing lots of mumbled asides uh, and all of this and 
uh, I, I thought going into this, I'd heard some people had had problems with the sound, and I thought, yeah, right. Um, and I didn't really buy it until I got to that scene, and then I went, I need subtitles. It's as simple as that. Mm. Um, so uh, this is also um, surely the last time Christopher Nolan can do this sort of film. Um, he's he's got to go in a different direction after this. Um, where I've got no idea. I wouldn't be surprised if he pivots to um, producing, actually. Um, but we'll see. Well, his his track record as a producer is shockingly bad. Well, yeah, <laughs> um, that's very true. Man of Steel, <laughs> Batman versus Superman, and Transcendence. Oh boy, <laughs> uh, which are all terrible. Yeah, that's um, not good, is it? No, I mean, I I find it unlikely that his relationship with Warner Brothers will survive this because he insisted on it being released in cinemas. It was, and it bombed because we're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. Um, so it lost an awful lot of money, which it hasn't been able to regain, not helped by the bad reviews. Um, so unless he's able to dramatically rethink the kind of film that he wants to make next time around, that he does the way... Yeah, I think I suggested years ago. He do something like a Woody Allen film, like a like a tight ninety minute comedy drama. Yeah, something to sort of exercise a different part of his um, skill set. Um, he's not Warner Brothers is not going to bankroll another two hundred million dollar blockbuster from no. him because he has now a track record of making very bad decisions. And he he have to say he comes across as a bit of a dinosaur, a bit of a um, a, a reactionary in his um, doubling down of film is the only medium in which to tell uh, movies movies type stories, and mm. then compounded by no, the cinema experience is the only way to experience this film, and that doesn't make leave any room for uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, other ways of, of telling the stories. I mean, look at um, Scorsese and doing the Irishman and sending that to, you know, giving it a small cinema release and then putting it onto onto streaming. I think the world has really changed and no one's going to get stuck looking like a dinosaur. Yeah. I, th- I think the, the the cinema release of The Irishman was purely to qualify for the Oscars, actually. I, don't, I don't, completely I think, agree. I, think, I don't think Scorsese was that concerned. I mean, he was probably thought it would no. you know, get shown somewhere at some point. But he wasn't that concerned yeah. about general release. Um, you sense Scorsese has made his peace with this model, yeah. and he can, and he that can Netflix still, have treated him very well. He can still tell stories in the way that he wants. The Netflix is apparently very good as a studio; they're very hands off. Mm. Um, so they say, "Yeah, here's your money. Go and make the movie." You know, doesn't matter about length because hey, it's 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 yeah. streaming; it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's the magic bullet with Netflix. They are they are giving the filmmakers. A wadge of cash, and then they step right back. Mm. And of course, they're getting talent flocking to them. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting. But I think I think the old paradigm is almost dead. And Nolan was trying to prop it up big time. I admire the sentiments. Um, I think it's old school, and I think kids are watching films on their phones. And Nolan has to make his peace with that. Yeah, but that's far think... from ideal, really. Sorry, Chris, carry on. Oh, all I was going to say was, do you think that because when was Tenet released? It was all sort of late summer, end of, autumn, end of, end of August last year. Yeah, do you think that that was the example that persuaded the Bond producers to to take the film completely out of circulation? I think it had. I think that probably had 
um, a loss of effects. I think the the Bond is a huge financial juggernaut, and I think they're they're really worried about that. Um, I think Bond will be will be much better when it finally gets its cinema release. It's in a much better position. But Tenant was built up to be the great saviour of of the cinema experience, um, and um, I th- I thought it was what's what's the word I'm looking for uh, irresponsible to um, coax people back into rooms um, and to share the breathing space at that particular time for an art form. Um, and and of course the big joke before Tenant came out was but what if it turns out to be rubbish <laughs> did yeah. did <laughs> well, that, well that, that was the problem with it, that, that it was kind of an unknown quantity that Nolan has a, yeah. a bit of an up and down track record and some of the original scripts he's worked on have been a bit uh, a bit sort of so so like Interstellar even though he wasn't the main writer on it oh. is not a great film um, and I think really, you don't think that love being a universal force is uh, the a sort of uh, concept that a grown man should be coming out with? <laughs> it's, well, it's something that Steven Spielberg has done a lot. The whole absent father thing is very Spielberg, and I think he was involved in developing the story some time ago. Um, yeah, but Nolan tries to make a Spielberg type film, a more sentimental film, and <clears throat> it didn't really work. It didn't help that it was another film with Mark. Um, with uh, Matt Damon playing a lost astronaut. Yeah, he was hilarious. I laughed a lot at his scenes. <laughs> the Martian is the Martian is the Christopher Nolan film that he didn't make. Imagine if he'd made that. You had all his technical expertise yeah. combined with a really good script that he hadn't yes. worked on. Because that's, because that's the Martian has a think great script. And, yeah, there's. But then, but then you wouldn't have had, you know, Christopher Nolan would never think of putting Love Train over the end credits of a two hundred million dollar, two and a half hour space movie. No, and he yet, wouldn't. And he yet in the Martian, it works brilliantly. Who would have thought that Christopher would that um, that Ridley Scott would think of that? Yeah, it, and more evidence that Ridley Scott's great when he gets a good script. Um, the only issue I have with The Martian is that um, you never for a moment think that Matt Damon is in any jeopardy whatsoever. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a procedural film. It's just like, well, how's he going to grow his potatoes and get off this rock? Um, well, that's the thing. I mean, it's and, it, and, it's... and that's the same with the book, by the way. It's not about whether or not this person's going to live or die. It's how is he going to solve this problem? Yeah. It's, it's inti- yeah. It, it, the whole focus of the story is about... Presented with the situation and these resources, how do I solve the situation? It's a it's a series of engineering puzzles, but handled with a degree of lightness and humour. Like he only has uh, the complete box set of Happy Days and three discs of disco music for entertainment for three years, and the only thing that he can eat every day is chips because he's growing potatoes in his own poo. <laughs> so it has it has that element of humour to it combined with this scientific mindset and that balance works so nicely and I don't think Nolan could manage that balance it would be a hell of a lot more boring if Christopher Nolan had directed The Martian mm. let's be honest well there are two other films that you've mentioned that you've seen that don't qualify I mean Zack Snyder's Justice League I'm not counting because it's a re-edit of a film from 2017 so you're four years late oh um, that's you told. Yeah, and Godzilla vs. Can't, can't Kong... I say anything about it? 
Uh, thumbs up or down? On a podcast? How's that going to work? <laughs> <laughs> you say the words aloud. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I'm not a mind reader. Um, it's the uh, Justice League, the Assembly Cut, and it's more of Zack Snyder stuff. If you like Zack Snyder, you're going to like this. If you don't like Zack Snyder, you're going to hate this for four straight hours. I saw the um, director's cut of Batman vs Superman, and it oh, just seemed to be like yeah. just more of the yeah, same more, film that I basically. saw before. It wasn't any better. Yeah. It couldn't have been any yeah. worse. It was just yeah, it was just longer. That's a pretty good description of of the new Justice League, actually. I did recently finally get around to see Justice League for the first time, and it's terrible. And then I got abuse on oh, Twitter okay. from someone saying, "Oh, but Zack Snyder didn't direct." Oh, shut up! Really? Oh. Yeah. I I kind of wish that Zack Snyder would go away. I know it's mean of me to say this, but I wish he'd stop making he's a, films. He's a terrible filmmaker, and he should give up. Mm. Um, and the other one is uh, Godzilla vs Kong, which is a, ah. a film of 2021, and which oh. I do plan on seeing, but we'll come to that next year. Well. In my opinion, no. Nope. You've got no. We're not talking about nice treat. <laughs> no. And a nice treat ahead. I'm of just going to mute you. <laughs> you know, Jeremy's like this in real life, listeners. That's what he says in in pubs when I'm waxing lyrical about about Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> monk, about Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. Many people say that. So the top ten films of the year. Ah. Some of which may or may not be familiar. Okay. At number 10, we have Proxima. Um, oh. Directed by Alice Winokur and starring Eva Green as an astronaut preparing for uh, her first space mission. Preparing uh, in terms of for the, for the, the technical challenges ahead, for the uh, physical and... Uh, psychological uh, stresses of space travel but also emotionally preparing to be separated from her daughter for an entire year um, it's I, th- I think a, a French Belgian co-production it's very low key it's very focused on the characters and it's very realistic I, I like that there was no false drama about the idea of space travel that that it's it's believable in that there's no sort of last minute oh is, is the mission going to work is there some kind of technical thing that's going to go wrong no every the, the the mission goes perfectly on a technical level everything goes fine because it always does it almost always does because these are really highly trained highly qualified people who know what they're doing um but the the meat of the film is in the the way it these emotional issues have to be processed by a character who is required by her job to be very contained and deal with serious situations in a, in a non-emotional way. Um, there are also themes about the uh, misogyny that's become inherent in, in systems like this. It's mentioned that um, Valentina Tereshkova put on makeup when she was making her first space journey, and the mission commander who is American and played by Matt Dillon, also has a dislike of, of Sarah, the main character, even though it's then shown that he's going through the same situation, that he's going to be separated from his family for a, f- a full year, and this then becomes a, 
a degree of common ground that they're able to make peace over. I really liked it. This 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 character study of of the emotional toll of 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 also from the, of the daughter being separated from her mother and having to go and live with her uh, her mother's ex husband, who's he's not again. It's realistic. He's he's not a bad guy. He's okay. It's just that he and his mother, he and her mother don't get on in a very believable way. But she trusts him with her daughter because he's basically a decent person. Um, and it sort of brings a a modern aspect, I think, to these to these older issues of mother and daughter and relationships and elements like that. I thought it was very very good, and I would name Eva Green as giving the best leading actress performance of the year. I thought she was really terrific. Oh, that sounds, oh, that needs, sounds like I need to catch up with this one. Um, hmm. Interesting that you say she's playing quite a, a controlled and buttoned-down character. Um, Eve is not known for um, restraint in a lot of the roles that she's been cast in. Um, she can give quite big, large theatrical yeah. performances. Th- this... So to hear her going in that direction, that's interesting. It's it's like a good version of First Man, <laughs> because that film yes. was that film was fatally flawed by being a biopic of a man who was very closed off and self-contained. And this is looking at well, there's but there's this key issue about it's not that. It's not that they're emotionless, it's that they have to contain their emotions. It reminds me, in fact, of the mistake I used to make about um, Spock in Star Trek. I used to think that he was incapable of emotion. That's not true. He does feel emotion, but he has to keep it contained. So the conflict is keeping that under control, not that there's just an absence. And that's, I think, the difference between these two films. Neil Armstrong in First Man is written as being just blank and no emotions, whereas Sarah in Proxima has to keep her emotions under control but it's the the conflict between her her emotions and the the strictures required by her job that create the drama in the film well the first man thing that annoyed me is is not that he was depicted as having no emotions it's it, it tried to draw a line between the death of his child and a supposed emotional repression which by accident happened to make him uh, the perfect person to to command the, the lunar module and be the first man on the moon. When actually Neil Armstrong just was a very uh, was the guy you wanted in the seat at that time. And um, I, I so I thought the psychobabble in First Man was ludicrous. Um, but also the directorial choices. I watched a little bit of First Man uh, a couple of days ago, and just I wanted to see the um, the moon landing sequence again. And I'd forgotten the really weird music that plays over the top of the the lem um and armstrong piloting the lem over the rocks over the crater and then to the landing point there's some really strange jaunty music and then we go into the use of the theremin um and it it just seems really at odds with the the level of tension if it plays more like a fairground ride um (laughs) i i know i know the bit you mean i like that music actually because it felt like a like, a, like an escalating tension sequence. But I'm just remembering the music from the Doctor Who story Mordred Undead, where one of the Doctor's companions steals a car. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, that's exactly. It's not, it's not quite. Yeah, it's not quite like that. But I see what you. I see what you mean. Yeah, it, you just think, what? Why this choice for this sequence? 
Um, and as as all, I think all three of us have talked before, none of us buy the whole uh, um, Neil Armstrong taking a nice little jaunt away on his own to drop a bracelet into a, um, a lunar crater. Um, that's uh, a, a moment of ridiculous sentimentality from the writer slash director that mm. I don't buy for a minute. Um, so this sounds interesting. I I, I need to catch up Proxima, and any time spent with Eva Green is is worth it, of course. Where did you watch Proxima? Uh, I what saw it as a digital rental. It's um, available as, as, a, as a digital rental. It's also available on disc. Um, I, if I remember, I will try and say where these films are out. Most of them are mm. digital <clears throat> rentals or or on disc. I think a couple of them are exclusive to streaming. But um, I'll try and remember as as we go through. Um, first on the list of five worst films of the year. Um, I think I'll say Ammonite. Ah. Um, I know what you're going to say about this film, and, I, and I'm going to pretty much agree with it. It's the uh, story of Mary Anning, one of the founders of the uh, modern study of paleontology, and her relationship with uh, a young woman, Charlotte Murchison, who was also interested in studying fossils at the time in um, the early part of the 19th century. And on the surface, that's a fine idea for a story, but the film decides to completely fabricate a romantic relationship between the two, for which there is no documentary evidence of any kind. And it really annoyed me because it felt that the filmmaker Francis Lee was saying that the facts of Anning's life and Murchison's life and their relationship were simply not interesting enough and that he instead had to invent this not not salacious it's actually it's handled quite tastefully i thought but this you know this out of time forbidden love between the two in order to spice the story up a bit and it felt extremely insulting to their legacies and to the viewer it's it's a nice production it's quite beautifully photographed down on the Jurassic Coast. There's a nice score. The performances from uh, Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan are both fine. But it, it just has this awful, cynical core to it. And I'm really getting quite tired of um, biographical dramas that fully manufacture um, major story elements just for the sake of um, the audience. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody was the, was the original sin for this, and that was uh, an appallingly poorly written script, which just full-on fabricated details of Freddie Mercury's life and reshuffled them in order to make it a more coherent story, rather than sticking to the actual facts of his, of his life story. But... Um, this, I think, is, is perhaps worse, because Anning's story isn't terribly well known. So people wouldn't necessarily be aware that this wasn't true. Um, so it gets on the list for um, basically lying to people and passing it off as fact. Well, um, Agatha Christie was in a Doctor Who story which featured a giant wasp. Why do you not have a problem with the fabrication of that tale and the real, real world character, but you do have a problem with this one? Because one's more it? believable than the other. 
I think it's timing, isn't it? There needs to have been a Mary Anning bog standard biopic first, and then we treat her as a fictional character and put her in any sorts of relationships you like. Um, I think the other problem... Because I... I Sorry, all I was going to say was I think the other problem is it's frequently the film version that persists. One of the reason that I one of the reasons I took against Titanic is that there's a sequence there where during the evacuation of the boat, there is one of the ship's officers shoots somebody, yeah, and then commits suicide. That is because the production of that film was marked by nothing but James Cameron bleating about how realistic and how accurate it was. That's somebody's relative, and people are now yes. think that that's what that person did. And yeah, no, 100%. I, I I couldn't agree more. Um, and I do believe the actual family took um, a lot of offence at that hmm. particular scene in Titanic, um, in which I was Team Iceberg all the way. Um, I, I I do agree with you. My my issue with Ammonite and why I haven't actually wanted to watch it is because the second I heard it's focusing on a an imagined relationship between Mary Anning and another woman. I've got no problem with that except I want to see a proper biopic of Mary Anning first please because she's fascinating um, and she I've, I've read a book on, on Mary Anning and the whole history of, of the discovery of the, of the fossils and all of this and how she was uh, was advised to underplay her involvement so the big wigs at the Natural History Museum could get all the glory that's much more interesting than who she decides she wants to snog I mean, it's it's mystifying to me that someone would look at that story, junk it um, for for this tale. I've got no. Pro- you want to have a, a relationship between two and on screen, no problem. But Mary Anning's fascinating. Um, it's the same issue I think that people took against the Margaret Thatcher film with um, Meryl Lady. in it. Yeah, where suddenly she's. Um, it's all about. Uh, Dennis basically and her feeling so lonely in retirement apart from the fact I don't give a shit if she was lonely in retirement I hope she burns in hell Um, but also of all the stories you could tell about that person you pick that one Um, and also it looked really grey and dull and boring so um, it it plays up the kind of windswept overcast rainswept coast and under the right circumstances, that can be very attractive, and it and you know it has the uh, the oppressive weather to match the oppressive mood of society at the time, which is a little bit obvious. But as a, the, the production credits, I thought were generally very good, and the performances are very good. It's just, you know, if the script is rotten, you know, there's nothing you can do. Can I ask one spoilerific question? Uh, okay, um, but I don't <laughs> I don't remember uh, that much about uh, the film. Apart from the fact that she discovers, um, finds Ammonites, why is the film called Ammonite? I don't know. Wow. I, if there was anything specific in the film relating to that, I don't remember. Okay, that's a pity. Maybe it's supposed to be like a you know something fascinating but hidden for many years, like the made-up relationship. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I, or I, something, don't something, I, don't remember, I don't remember there being any specific uh, reference to it. It'll be a heavy-handed metaphor for something buried and repressed and then uncovered. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. I, I'm i hoping that um, uh, she might get uh, to appear in Doctor Who. I mean, if Chidnall mm. needs famous female right. figures from history, um, Mary Anning's wide open. But I think he'll probably get to Marie Curie before, uh, before her. Yeah. 
They should bring back pure historicals as well. They should bring back good writing. Well, yeah, that primarily. But um, I was very disappointed <laughs> when they had the, the witch hunting episode with James I, and it turned out that there were real monsters or something. I thought, oh, that's disappointing. I thought this was yeah, going to be about... Actually. This was going to be about mm. witch trials and things. Because there was, yeah. there was a Doctor Who novel in, I think, 1998 or so about the Salem witch trials yeah. with no sci-fi elements at all. And it's one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah, you're quite right. Uh, the mud monsters in that. Yeah. And, um, which is, I mean, uh, yeah, you, you know, can have mud monsters, that's fine. But I just felt... Yeah. It, I think this would have been better without the mud monsters. Let them have let them have their own day in the sun when they can you know, yes. dry, when they can dry out. And... Terror of the mud monsters. Well, exactly. In fact, Mary Anning could be in a mud monster story. Imagine that. Yeah, but the story needs to really be. She's about... she's kind of like is... uncovering an ammonite, and suddenly it opens its eyes. Okay, but uh... the story really needs to be about her. All right. Yeah. 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 If you if you doing this kind of thing. The, the the best ending for, a, for for a story about her would be to take her back in time and she gets to see the Ammonites in their natural environment. And she starts blubbing and yeah, well, a, yeah, pop, a pop tune starts playing. <laughs> yes. Well, the, the, end, the ending of the, uh, the Witch Hunter's Doctor Who novel is that the Doctor takes Rebecca Nurse forward in time to Salem of the present day where the, the victims of the witch trials are commemorated. But it but it's the day, and then he takes her back again because he has to obviously fulfil history. But it's the day before she's executed. It's not much of a consolation. So it's it's it's, it's very takes... it's very tale of two cities. It's you know, having on the on the gallows having that vision of of a future that will be better for your descendants, and that 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 your sacrifice actually will mean something and will be remembered. What about Jodie taking Mary Anning to the premiere of Ammonite? And a single tear rolling down her cheek. <laughs> and speaking of films that fictionalise true stories, the film about the making of Mary Poppins that ends with P.L. Travers going to the premiere and liking the movie, which she fundamentally did not do. <laughs> I liked that film apart from the bits they made up, and that annoyed me because a lot of it I really liked. That's That was straight up Disney propaganda, that film, wasn't it? Not? Not... Fully, there were bits that were more like Tom Hanks' portrayal of Disney himself. I think was it had he had much more rougher edges. He's openly much more of a salesman. He's shown smoking in one scene, which was a big no-no in a Disney film, um, and a a, manip- a manipulator, even if it's for as he sees it, a, you know a. A positive cause. He still is a little more Machiavellian. It's not. I, I mean, it is. It is reinforcing the Disney legend, but not in quite the way people would have expected. I don't think. But isn't it also another film that then has to invent loads of dime store psychobabble? Because isn't it implied that she only writes these books because of her relationship with her dad or something? I don't think that's necessarily untrue, though. Um, it's a while since I've looked into this, but I think that, that her backstory about her father being inspiration for Mr. Banks and being a, a, a dissolute type, and then the, the Mary Poppins figure being her aunt, who got the house together after her father drank himself to death. I think that that's broadly accurate. Okay. I think. It's, I've obviously just but, seen too many films. All right. 
where uh, where people throw their daughter's bracelet into moon craters, for example. <laughs> that does happen a lot. But um, the performances in that film are great, and Colin Farrell as the as the father. It's, I think it's the best performance of his career. As this uh, drunken family man who who really loves his family and is trying to do the best for them, but he just has these weaknesses and these demons that he can't overcome. It's a good film. Anyway, number nine on the good list is a film of 2021, which qualifies because it was released in the first two months, and that is Judas and the Black Messiah. Ah. The story of the relationship between uh, Fred Hampton, one of the leading figures in the Black Panthers, and uh, William O'Neill, the um, insider recruit who was a plant for the FBI, who ultimately was... um, well, not partially responsible for Hampton's assassination. Um, the film is <laughs> quite pleasingly a fairly blunt recruitment tool for socialism. <laughs> um, it, it, it explores in, in quite a lot of detail the philosophy and the politics of the, the Black Panther movement um, and shows uh, J. Edgar Hoover as being driven in his crusade against the Black Panthers by blind racism um, rather than uh, what the Panthers intend to upend the status quo and there's a lot more detail it's not just about um, black nationalism in any way they create a coalition with other groups like disaffected white southerners who are angry but being ignored by Washington Puerto Rican groups all pushing towards this this same goal of overthrowing the the right-wing forces in government. Um, There are some compelling leading performances by Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya, who richly deserved his Oscar. Um, And it's it's a very finely layered film. We see in in O'Neill's character his idealism growing and his admiration for Hampton growing, even though he is is set to betray him because that's balanced by his, his terror of being exposed because of his fear of what will happen. Um, I think Daniel Kaluuya is terrific. Uh, Hampton is shown to be intelligent and charismatic and highly focused on his, um, on his crusade almost, but still a very human and believable and romantic character. He's, he has a small subplot about a, a burgeoning relationship he has. Um, Having mentioned before films that fictionalise real events, I checked, and the film is generally very accurate. Um, And the film comes up to date by showing how the the Panthers have managed to survive Hampton's death and how the revolution they seek is still ongoing with Black Lives Matter and protest against police brutality. Um, It's an extremely timely film. Um, Mm. Brilliantly written and acted, brilliantly constructed um, and the fact that it's really broken through is, in the way that it has is very pleasing I think I thought the trailer was absolutely rip-roaring um, really grabbed you um, by virtue of the, the subject matter and, and the amazing performances so yeah it's definitely one that I want to catch up with how does it compare to something like Black Klansman? Because, as you say, they both, it sounds like they both end up touching on the same, same present-day subject matter. Black Klansman it ha- has a lot of humour in it. 
um, and it, it is a lot of the time very funny and deliberately so but this is dealing with a much darker story um, and one where the outcome is already known I mean, it's, it's well known that Fred Hampton was assassinated by the FBI so we're kind of seeing the process of that and seeing the the path that, that could have been taken the, the, the Panthers for example arranged in neighbourhoods free breakfasts for school children and were behind a lot of these very um, important local charitable uh, drives when the establishment was just ignoring these communities and just leaving them behind. Whereas Black Klansman is about targeting specific people, it's sort of going, going the other way. It's more about the racists and less about the, the black community and the black organisations. And how's Martin Sheen in it? He's only in it briefly as J. Edgar Hoover. Um, he's... The, char- the, the way the character's written, it could have been quite over the top, but I think he's aware of that and he's underplaying it a bit. Um, because Hoover was just such a monster. Um, mm. the, the, the film, I think, stopped short of portraying him as any kind of outright ghoul. Yeah, he, I don't feel I've ever seen a proper depiction of Hoover on screen. I know that um, DiCaprio was cast, uh, I think, in Clint Eastwood's film of um, J. Edgar Hoover. Um, but last year I read um, American Tabloid by James Elroy. And um, Elroy is, 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 is an amazing read. I absolutely loved it. And um, Hoover is this sort of spider-like presence um and he's sitting above everybody with his with his feelers everywhere and elroy does um tip his hat to all the the different rumors about um hoover hoover seems an incredibly baroque odd um strange and and terrifyingly powerful man who was there for what seemed like decades um lurking at the heart of the FBI um, so I, I thought when I saw Martin Sheen well that's not my idea of J. Edgar Hoover um, but Sheen Sheen looked like he was um, uh, quite magnetic in that he's basically playing the bad guy he's yes, playing the um, but it's but, yeah. but as I say he's only in a, a couple of scenes he's really just illustrative of what's at the top yeah. of this of this tree and the focus is, is much more on the relationship between Hampton and O'Neill. Um, Daniel Kaluuya has, has very, very rapidly become our most versatile young actor. Yeah. He's, I remember him in Psychoville. And which was, I wouldn't say a light comic performance. I mean, he was in, he was in Harry Enfield's sketch mm. show. <laughs> really? Was, yeah, it was, uh, it was a spoof. A parking Patawayo, yeah. Parking Patawayo about an officious traffic warden with sketches in the style of um, animation. And he, was, and he was sort of mugging to camera, and it was very, very broad and very silly. But he's capable of that kind of nonsense. I mean, he was recently hosting Saturday Night Live and throwing himself into the other mm. you know, goofy sketches and things. But also very believable, focused, dramatic performances like this and Get Out. Yes. He's got a very... 
interesting long career ahead of him. Yes, he has. And that again, I haven't seen the film, but my God, the power coming off the screen in his performance in that trailer um, is is electric. Mm. So I was very. I, I don't quite know why I've, I haven't sought that out. Actually, really. Well, one issue was that it was a premium rental, so it cost me sixteen pounds to watch. Ouch. Oh, okay, yeah. I'd want the DVD um, for that. Uh, well, it'll be out on disc in a in a couple of months, I expect, mm. or the digital rental will be down to three. Or do, you, four do you think, as 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 not least we three have been forced to um, to stream ourselves for these uh, podcasts? Do you think that over um, the forthcoming years of us no doubt doing this, we're going to be talking more about actually we're streaming this rather than? Um, yes. making a trip to see the cinema. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Um, studios are already negotiating <clears throat> with distributors in the UK to cut the theatrical window down to only 30 days, or 45 if it reaches a, reaches a predetermined um, box office gross. So streaming is going to become much more commonplace and much more acceptable. Yeah. So I, I would I want to see June at on the biggest screen possible. I want to see Bond. Um, I I want to have a nice evening out with friends and family when I when I go to these. So inevitably I'll be going to the, the cinema um, in a very different manner that that which I went at university, which was definitely I've got a free afternoon. I'll just go and see what's on at the flicks. Um, so I can definitely see event cinema being um, propping up the. Um, the cinemas themselves, whereas the interesting stuff, the all the um, uh, the, the the more meaty affair, I've got zero problem streaming at all. It makes me want to go out and buy a really really big TV set, um, TV set. Listen to me, um, you know, 4K, whatever it's called these days, um, so I can have an excellent home viewing cinema. I don't see it stopping cinema dead at all. I see it as just another distribution model. Mm. And People are, I mean, Christopher Nolan disagrees, but Scorsese, <laughs> Scorsese who is in, in other ways, I yeah. think, a bit of a dinosaur in, in some of his attitudes, is very happy to work with streaming, Absolutely. very happy to, yeah. to go down that route if yeah. that means that the film he wants to get made gets made and gets widely seen. Um, yes, indeed. Nolan is not quite that um, forward thinking, which is surprising. But we've spent enough time slagging yeah. off Christopher Nolan. Well, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he's got a silly haircut and his bum smells. Um, next on the list, a bit, of, yeah, a bit of a change of pace at number eight, Possessor. Um, the new film from Brandon Cronenberg, son of David. Um, he's, right. he's very much his father's son. And um, a chip off the old block. It's a science fiction thriller about industrial espionage in which um, companies can hire contractors uh, to work as possessors using technology and uh, implants in their victims to control people remotely like puppets. Uh, this to... definitely sounds like a uh, Cronenberg chip off the old it? block. And um, uh, steal secrets and even conduct assassinations. Um, but um, inevitably one of these cases goes wrong and the the possessed is able to turn the tables on his possessor and identities start to bleed and overlap and um, it all gets very Cronenbergian. It has a very distinct um, visual style that's actually, although the, 
the tone and the the type of content is similar to Cronenberg Senior. The visual style is quite different. It feels much more like the work of um, Panos Kosmatos, director of Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow, particularly in scenes where the the two characters meet in this kind of psychic space where they're, where they're able to connect. And that contrasts with the the assassination scenes, which are horribly realistic. Like one character gets shot in the face, someone else is beaten to death with a poker. Very violent, very gruesome, and it, it, it's deliberately showing, again, the, the body horror aspect, but really not pulling back on you know, this very traditional uh, violent acts in movies, but showing how horrible they are, how painful and stomach-turning they are. Um, it has an extraordinary cast. You've got uh, Andrea Riseborough, uh, an actor called Christopher Abbott, who I've not really been familiar with, but who plays both his normal character and his character possessed by Riseborough. So he's really playing two different characters, but they're supposed to be the same one. So there's some subtle differences in his performance, so as, as as he's himself and someone else pretending to be him. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee plays Riseborough's control. Sean Bean plays the the target. It's a really clever, interesting, complex idea. Really nicely portrayed, brilliantly directed, and the ideas behind it stuck with me for quite a while. Um, Cronenberg Sr. is currently working on a new film, his first in about seven years, um, which I'm really looking forward to. But he's done a very fine job with his son, who is definitely continuing his legacy of weird, interesting, very well-made films on subjects no one else would think of touching. Excellent. Uh, I had literally no knowledge of the existence of this film. It had a very poorly publicised release. It actually came out about sort of November, I think. I ended up watching it again. It was a, a premium rental. I watched it just before Christmas. And it's now out on disc, and I think a, a cheaper rental as well. So, it's again, it's wildly available. Um, Judas and the Black Messiah, I think, is only available as premium rental, but that'll be out on disc in a, in a couple of months or so. Um, but Possessor is is very very good indeed I liked it a lot mm. and I'd recommend um, Brandon Cronenberg's previous film Antiviral which is about mm-hmm. the trade in celebrity illnesses that, uh, celebrity that illnesses pe- people will pay money to be infected by um, a famous person's cold <laughs> that's excellent yeah it's that kind of so you think yes that's very Cronenberg but it's the start, the, yes. the the tone of it and the style is different to make it kind of its own thing. So, um, yeah. And I do like a bit of Jennifer Jason Lee, and um, her and Andrea Riseborough in the same film. Um, definitely, I must. That's another one that sounds good. Next in the bottom five, I think is going to have to be Downhill. Um, Ah, this is written, written and directed by Nat Faxon and Jim Rash, and it's a remake of the Norwegian film Force Majeure. Yes, and it's got Will Ferrell in it, hasn't Will, it? Will Ferrell and Julia Louis Dreyfus. Um, <sighs> the 
the setup is that they're a wealth, a, you know, comfortably wealthy family on a skiing holiday, and having lunch on the hotel balcony one day, they suddenly see an explosion and snow cascading down the side of the mountain. And as it gets closer, they start to panic, and the husband grabs his phone and makes a run for it. The snow reaches them, and it just washes over them gently as a, as a cloud. It was a controlled avalanche, all organised, perfectly safe, a bit frightening, but absolutely nothing to worry about. The husband quietly walks back to the table, sits down, and just starts looking at the menu. And the film is about the fallout from his his decision, his his cowardly action of running away. The original film is a, it's relatively serious. It has a little edge of dark comedy to it, but it's mostly a, a dramatic work about how this event impacts the central relationship in their whole family. Downhill is incredibly broad, it's incredibly lazy, and it's a very sloppy film. The tone is a mess. Uh, that uh, I get the feeling it's supposed to be about you know, ugly Americans abroad, but it never really commits to that. And the European characters are written as just the lowest kind of stereotype, although they have crazy accents and they all sleep with each other. And and it's it's like a... I'm, I'm tempted to say it's like a carry-on film. That would be to give it too much dignity. It's like a confessions film. Um, Will Ferrell is completely miscast. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is so much better than the material she's given. Uh, Miranda Otto has a supporting role as a, as a, again, poorly defined ski rep tour manager, I think, um, who tries to seduce Will Ferrell's character, and that doesn't go anywhere. And even the ending has been changed. Uh, in the original, there is, vaguely to avoid spoilers, there is a, a reconciliation and a, a way forward for the, the, the family. In this version, there's just uh, bitter manipulation, performative reconciliation for the sake of the children, and a gag final scene, which is meant to allude to the avalanche earlier on, but which doesn't really affect anything or mean anything it spends far too much time explaining things and not trusting the audience to read into situations from their own empathy the film simply doesn't even understand that the audience is able to empathise with characters and, and, and connect emotionally and on top of all of that it's far too short it's barely 80 minutes and it, it just looks like they try to get this just done and over with as quickly as possible in the laziest and shortest possible route and the path of least possible resistance. It's a really sloppy, slapdash piece of work, and I thought it was really insulting to the original film. Weirdly, I think... Your bad reviews are always hilarious. I think the original film, the, the relevant clip of the Avalanche, actually went... Not exactly viral, but I suddenly remember seeing it circulated as a real clip that had happened to a family. I can imagine that. Um, I think in the original film it was all done for real, because mm. you know, they, they, they have these controlled avalanches fairly regularly. They have to. Um, and they're usually absolutely nothing to worry about. Um, yeah, so the it's, original, yeah, the, the original film, Force Majeure, is very good, and I would recommend it. Mm. But, but Downhill is absolutely horrible. Yeah, I, I, I 
I've seen the startup force force majeure, and I thought it was um, you know, a fantastic premise, and I wanted to see how um, it was going to be unpacked. And um, when I I heard that it had been remade, particularly with Will Ferrell, I thought I was hallucinating. I thought, um, but it's not a broad comedy. It's an interesting dramatic concept. What what's going on? I thought they'd are they seeing a completely different film to the one that I saw? Um, so, well, yeah, I, I imagine it would be quite a painful watch, to be honest with you. It was. It's It's really odd how badly they misread it, because I think they were trying to widen the potential audience, I think, in, in making it more of a comedy and making it more of a... Um, uh, something, you know, with, with the big comedy names and that kind of thing. But even... And it was released in, the, in cinemas before the pandemic, but even then, it was a surprising box office disaster... It made, I think, less than half its budget, and it was not an expensive film. I don't know how Will Ferrell keeps getting hired for these things. I really don't. His his filmography is weird because he's got some really fun comedy performances early on, mm. and some interesting things later. And he's been very successful as a producer. He's produced a lot of uh, co-produced a lot of Adam Mackay's films, like uh, Vice or The Big Short. He's just he's just worked as producer on those. But a lot of his more recent work is really quite ropey, and it's like he doesn't really know where to go with his career now. And Julia Louis Dreyfus, having had such a massively successful television career, really should know better. I mean, how many, she, I think she has more Emmys than any other actress ever. Hmm. Now it's she's like the Catherine Hepburn of TV comedy, um, and you know, fresh off Veep, which was a terrific series, and she does this, and she's and weirdly she's yeah. gone straight from this to jumping into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where she's playing a completely hmm. serious character, which seems like another quite weird choice. And you mentioned Miranda Otto. Um, why isn't Miranda Otto a a massive star in the Lord of the Rings in the return of the King. She has the big feminist moment where she pulls off her helmet and goes, I am no man and has the entire cinema cheering. Uh, and then not unlike Arya in at the end of game of Thrones, um, then demolishes the big bad. So I don't know why she seems to completely disappear. Um, and then she crops up in something like this. I think it varies sometimes from, Sorry, Chris. All, all I was going to say was it varies sometimes from actress to actress. The example I've always seen given was uh, the actress from The Princess Bride, who plays the poet. Oh, right. Robin Gitt. Yeah, yeah. yeah, where she didn't want that sort of career. But it's been said that she absolutely could have had one if she'd wanted to, but she just decided that that wasn't what the route she wanted to go down. Fair enough. Yeah, maybe Miranda Ross has been in a, a, a long-running TV series for the last 15 years or so, but um, yeah, it's an, it's an odd little piece of fluff role for her to prop up in. Mm. So number yeah. seven on the good list is Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Uh. Um, based on the novel by, I think, Ian Reid. Um This is a, this was This was a Netflix exclusive, so I think it's only available there at the moment. Um, it's about a young couple travelling to 
visit his parents one winter day and the relationship between the the title is the first line of the film and it's the the girl saying it to herself that she seems to think that the relationship is reaching a natural conclusion and they meet the parents there and they're played by um, Tony Collette and David Thewlis but then things start to get strange as they do because it's a Charlie Kaufman film and the ages start to fluctuate and the house starts offering strange clues as to what's going on and everything also seems to be connected in some way to the occasional cutaways to a high school janitor going about his day. I don't want to say too much more than that because the film is a magic trick. Um, it's it's about a, something totally different to what you think it's going to be about, but it is structured so elegantly that you don't necessarily realise that until you know the the final flourish is dealt, and then even then it goes off in some other strange directions. There's a there's a dance number. There's scenes in the high school which. Um, uh, point to other other levels of artificiality. Um, it it has uh, ideas about uh, aging and loneliness and believing oneself to be an ignored genius. It still feels like a very cold film. The 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 wintry setting and the the stop off that the characters make for ice cream on their way home. I think points to this this chilly isolationism that that the characters feel and it's a lot less funny than Kaufman's other work but it has some extraordinary performances as Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons as the, as the two young people and as I said uh, Thewlis and Colette as the, the parents are they're all terrific um, it is ultimately not much more than a puzzle the, the themes are perhaps a little shallow but the construction of it and the idea of it is so brilliant that I think it makes up for other deficiencies. I thought it was really qu quite a brilliant piece of construction. Mm. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Speechless. Um, I remember I mentioned this, uh, this to you before, Anthony, and you said you were a bit concerned about the title. Yeah, um, and you did allude to the fact that it's not quite what I was worried that it might be about. No, as I say, it is initially about the the, the mm, line that sounds to her, a bit more reassuring to end the relationship. But the, yeah. a lot of the film has multiple meanings and multiple um, levels, so one should not take things at face value necessarily. A good a good life lesson. But I, I think you're concerned that it might be. Triggering. triggering in some way. I don't think that's necessarily likely. I mean, obviously, it's down down to the viewer. Yeah. But yeah. I think you would have been put off by the film long before you get to a point where there is <laughs> anything that you might find upsetting. Cool. Number six, <laughs> speaking of um, upsetting material, a film about abortion. Um, mm. Never rarely, sometimes always. Um, directed by Eliza Hitman. It's a story of a young woman who heads into New York seeking a termination with the assistance of her, her best friend and it's about the bureaucratic nightmare of seeching abortion. Early on she goes to a clinic 
where she's given reams of false information and shown a, a video that's trying to discourage her from um, uh, ending her pregnancy. And the, the theme of the whole film is about how society as a whole seems constructed to prevent people in the situation seeking the assistance that they need. Um, even when she goes to the clinic in New York, the staff there are much more supportive, much more honest, but there is still this bureaucratic nightmare of paperwork to go through, like almost like Brazil. And although the film is deliberately very realistic in tone and very filmed handheld with very naturalistic performances, it still feels like you're just working your way through this anxiety nightmare of having to deal with this with this terrible traumatic thing and getting absolutely no help from anybody except your lifelong best friend who's next to you the whole time. The title of the film comes from the uh, responses that you give to a questionnaire while, um, while she's in the clinic. And the questions start off quite reasonable and um, logical regarding medical history and drug use and that kind of thing. But they become much more illustrative of explaining the character's background um, referring to issues of sexual violence and it's eventually revealed that this teenage girl who's pregnant has actually been sexually active for some years and was raped from a young age by a family member and yet there has been no support structure for this at all she's being victimised for being already a victim of this hierarchical structure where she is constantly being kept at the bottom even though it's a, a relatively long film, I think it's close to two hours, I found it completely absorbing and utterly compelling. I think the performances are brilliant, uh, Sidney Flanagan and Talia Ryder in the two lead roles. I did not find it heavy going at all, much to my surprise. Despite the darkness and seriousness of the, of the subject matter, I, I was just able to engage with it completely on an emotional level and uh, even... A, a, even then, I didn't record my review of it until a week later because I just wanted to let it fully percolate as I was worried that I might have missed something. I thought it was a really impactful, a really strong, powerful call to action. A very, very good film. Mm. I have to say it's not something I would probably watch out of choice, um, but that sounds like it's um, a fairly balanced um, thoughtful approach to the subject matter it's very very stripped down um, it doesn't it doesn't go for artifice at all and I think that a lot of the actors are probably non-professionals aside from the two leads mm. um, but yeah the, the way it uses this one story to, to illustrate this whole structure that exists to keep people in place to keep people oppressed um, I thought it was very clever and it, it does so very delicately without, that, I mean there, are, there aren't any sort of long um, didactic sequences, the characters are you know, re relatively well educated but not massively politically aware or anything like that so there aren't long discursive digressions on political thought again it's left to the audience to, to fill all this in and, and to piece together information from what we've been told and I take it sounds like it was very secular. It doesn't sound you haven't mentioned any faith-based uh, elements or critique uh, in this film. Um, 
the the video that she's shown in the clinic early on, I think there was an element of, oh, Jesus wouldn't want you to abort your beautiful baby. But I think at the same time, there's a sense that these people are not representative of Christianity as a whole. These people are mm. real Christians. Because real Christians would try and help. Well, when I was at sixth form, I went to a, a Catholic sixth form, and um, the uh, Catholic Church has a particular society to um, block um, abortion full stop. It's called the Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child. And they, uh, part of their literature was straight out pornography. It was um, photographs of, of what an aborted um, a baby, not just a fetus, uh, mm. actually looks like. And it's designed to shock people like me at that age into going, yikes, that looks terrible, let's stop abortion. Um, and uh, obviously it's a vastly more complicated um, subject than that and um, and I'm violently against that sort of approach now of course much more um, you know choice is the importance here and the support this sounds like it's much more about um, the the um, the bureaucracy the uh, the organizational structures around um, yeah the choices so that's interesting religion religion doesn't um, play a, a major part within the idea it, it is much more bureaucratic and political yeah. although the all the politics yeah. is downplayed in terms of you know policy it's more about the impact these things have on real people that's an interesting angle because it's very low for hanging fruit to go after organized religions um mm. a, a angle on a angle on abortion but i mean even though would arguably be extremely justified it's I wouldn't necessarily rate that particularly well in a film because we've seen it already that's something for documentaries yeah, yeah. that's something for outside film it's something for you know campaigns and political causes to deal with um, whereas simply telling the story from the point of view of a young woman who is going through this and we see everything through her eyes and her experience it's again it's the audience's empathy Mm. Mm. So next on the naughty list. Oh man. Oh, I wondered when you were going to get to this. Yes, isn't it just? Um, David Fincher's worst film, by some margin. Um, the story of a failed bitter screenwriter who pulls Citizen Kane out of his ass, written by a failed bitter screenwriter <laughs> who also happens to be the director's late father. Um, poor characterization, weak dialogue. Um, we're constantly told that Mankiewicz was a great talent as a writer, but we're never actually shown it. Um, Gary Oldman is completely miscast. He's about 20 years older than Mank was in real life, and the characterization is very flat. The story is a total shambles. Um, and again, it goes back to the thing that I can keep complaining about biographies that completely fictionalise aspects of the story to serve the writer's own ends. Um, uh, Mankiewicz's motivation supposedly in writing Citizen Kane was to um, redress a balance he felt from the uh, campaign for Governor of California conducted by the author Upton Sinclair and the way that he was uh, involved in a, a sabotaging of it by right-wing elements of the establishment and the press. This is completely fictitious. 
um, Mankiewicz had no involvement with this of any kind, and in fact was considerably more conservative than he's portrayed in the film, regardless of his supposed support of um, refugees resettling in the United States. Um, it seems to be just an act of satisfying ego to portray Mankiewicz, the writer, as some kind of forgotten saint, when none of that is borne out by any evidence of any kind. It's incredibly self-indulgent and shallow. Um, the evidence that um, Wells co-devised the story of Citizen Kane with Mankiewicz, Mankiewicz wrote the first draft and then Wells polished it. That's what actually happened, because there's evidence that that happened, regardless of what Pauline Kael claims, because the film seems to be based on her claims that Wells had little involvement in writing the script, which is completely untrue. Um, I don't know what Fincher thinks he's doing anymore, because he's made two terrible films consecutively. He hasn't made a decent film in a decade. Why is, why is he pandering to you know, the, the whims of his late father, who had no other writing credits, to produce this crap? It's, 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 <laughs> it's a, it is a film whose existence cannot be justified. There's probably a Netflix um, biographical film in the making of Mank. Well, it's a Netflix film. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, but you could probably go into the the, the the psychobabble of the relationship between Fincher and his father, and why Fincher felt the need to make this film. Yeah. Well, I can't disagree with anything you said, uh, Jeremy. I, I I I'm not sure I can add anything more to that. I completely agree. I think um, it's it's very shallow. Um, it commits all the. Um, the crimes of every other hack biography out there it just uh, just dresses it up in a lot of black and white splashy cinematography um, I agree Oldman hammy um, I thought the script the, 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 the moment that struck me as as being really just the sort of thing you see in a bog standard biography comes right at the end where um, Wells and Mankiewicz have an argument over the credit that, that Mank wants for, Orson, for uh, Citizen Kane and uh, Wells starts throwing things around in the room and Mank goes straight to the tape and goes, well this could be really good for the bit where, where Kane splits up from his wife and, and smashes up the room, the famous scene where, where Kane really loses it um, which is you know, if, if this wasn't in black and white and had you know, slightly more B-grade celebs in it, it would just be a bog-standard, boring biography. Problem is, Mankiewicz is the only thing he ever did which was actually interesting is write Citizen Kane, and that involves someone sitting at a piece of paper and typing. Um, and it's... I thought it was slightly out of tone with the zeitgeist as well. I The... A film about a supposedly genius alcoholic who comes up with some miraculous work of art. Um, I don't buy that anymore. Uh, I really don't. I've got no time for this. And it, it, writing is, is craftsmanship. It's not something that, um, that that Mank was particularly blessed by. The film is sentimental. It ends on a on a, um, a, a freeze frame shot of Mankiewicz with the Oscar and and he was 55 when he passed away because he drank himself to death well you know that's that's his choice um the other the other alcoholic writer that i think i would prefer to have seen a film about would have been raymond chandler who at least had the virtue of a more interesting uh, upbringing and then into the oil industry and then into writing um marrying a much older woman 
and but again drinking himself into an early grave um there's nothing intrinsically interesting about these writers lives it's the work that is interesting um so i agree it's a really odd film Mm. um it's odd odd title probably probably an inadvisable title for um for brits as well um you only have to turn one letter upside down I know, I know. I think, I, uh, I mean, <laughs> um, uh, it's just, it's just bewildering. Um, I, I, I think. I mean, even the notion that um, Wells wouldn't share credit is ridiculous because at the end, at the end of Citizen Kane, the last credit is his name, and in the same mm. screen, director of photography Greg Toland whom Wells repeatedly said without him this film would look like garbage because Wells knew nothing about mm. filmmaking mm. and nothing about photography and cameras he just told Toland do do whatever it is you do and Toland made it look fantastic and Wells gave him all the credit for it so the idea yeah. that he wouldn't do uh, that with Mankiewicz if it was justified and backed by reality is complete nonsense and I'm not. I don't entirely understand why it's shot like a 1940s film. I don't understand why. Because Fincher, apart from because Fincher likes doing that. I mean, he's now he's now just becoming a, it, a box of tricks and quirks. Yeah, it is a technical exercise, and um, I'm sure he I'm sure he was very interesting doing it. But I don't think it brought anything new to the story. It, it didn't even imply to me that this is some fictionalization that we're being invited to participate in. Um, I just thought it was a, an unnecessary affectation. I think we could have got a third season of Manhunter instead of this, and I would have enjoyed that a bit better. So, fifth on the good list is The Assistant. Oh. Um, um, this is written and directed by Kitty Green and stars Julia Garner, and it follows the events of a single day for The Assistant to the head of a film production company in New York. Um... She starts the day, is picked up by a town car, arrives before dawn, before anyone else is in the office, and she goes through all the menial work that she has to do there, doing the photocopying, um, putting in lunch orders, clearing up messes in her boss's office, and dealing with things like women coming in for a lost earring, a new assistant who's been hired who's very attractive but doesn't have any qualifications. And when driven by her concerns, the assistant eventually goes to the company's HR rep. Uh, He gaslights her into dropping her uh, inquiry about what's actually going on behind the boss's door, uh, alluding to the prospect of her career being damaged if she were to pursue this further, but also acknowledging that something is happening. Um, It's obviously about Weinstein but it's again pointing to a whole industry that exists in this uh, in this fashion where this kind of abuse of power is tolerated and covered up because it's justified by the amount of money people make Um, while the people at the bottom the assistant who has to clear up after other people is treated just as an afterthought and her concerns are dismissed and she's told to know put up and shut up while the whole culture allows this abuse to perpetrate um 
by the end of the story, we do see that it is possible to escape from this environment, but that the environment itself will just perpetuate itself. Um, it's quite an unnerving film, and again, it, it, it stuck with me for a while. It's quite stark and low-key. Um, in his one scene as the HR rep, I thought Matthew McFadden was very effective and mm. um, very unnerving. And a very natural performance showing, but just explaining how, no, this isn't, this isn't really happening and you, know, you shouldn't talk about this more because it might hurt you later on. But then at the very end, acknowledging that there is, there is something happening. Um, very unnerving film. Not perhaps the um, upbeat parade of jollity that um, you were hoping for during the last year, but um, very timely all the same. And we're discussing this, what, two weeks after hero of British black filmmaking, Noel Clark, has seen his career um, be obliterated um, because of charges of... Um, uh, Abuse and oh, harassment, well, let's say. Yes, that's exactly it. Um, and it looks like it's across the board, uh, it is alleged... Um, so it sounds like fairly fairly timely. People are losing patience with this. The the um, the incoming generation into uh, the Hollywood and the filmmaking power structures and the media and uh, all other sorts of systems are just not putting up with this shit anymore. And and quite right too. So that sounds like quite another quite timely film. Your choices this year, Jeremy, are coming across like a bit like the Oscars, which was described as basically the the Sundance Oscars. Um, that uh, because of all the, the delays in the um, the big blockbusters, we're discussing lots of interesting smaller films this year. Um, maybe we should be relishing this moment because uh, that might change. Well, we'll see. I mean, as we said before, changes to um, distribution models and the rise of streaming services that give um, so much freedom to filmmakers. And that... Um, giant budget blockbusters are less likely to be feasible at the box office. I mean, I think we will probably see a return to to smaller features, or at least um, more contained films. I mean, I think and it, the, 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 next, it, the next Bond film I fully expect to be a yeah. theorise only style lower budget reset. Oh god, yeah, and and probably straddling this uh, the streaming and the cinema world. Bond will never fully leave the um, the exhibition world. It will always be an event no. movie, I think. Um, but we we can presume to expect it quicker on streaming services. Um, but the the um, publishing world has been through this transition um, about what fifteen years ago with the rise of the EPUB reader and. Um, as we have seen, it did a it did not decimate people's reading habits, and b it in fact led to a spike in reading, not least over the course of um, the last year in the pandemic, where people were sitting around uh, bored out their minds and not wanting to to binge watch anymore. Um, and uh, the the digital version of books exists quite happily alongside the physical side of it, although we have seen a, the decimation of, of bookstores and. Um, and and all of that. The ones that have survived are the ones that have provided um, a good experience for the book buying public. But books as physical objects are still here, and I fully expect to see the the cinema experience existing quite happily alongside streaming. It's it's um, it's a fascinating time to as as sort of engaged 
um, uh, watchers of, of you know movies and, and and the landscape. You know, I have no dog in this fight. I don't have any emotional desire for you know all cinemas to remain open or anything like that. I'm just interested to see where all this is leading, and I have to say I can only see it as being a benefit. Um, you know. Um, so the assistant sounds interesting, um, although again quite a, a, a little bit grim. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, at number four we do have um, a genuine box office hit, a surprise sensation. Um, Yay! Ho- yeah, hooray! Um, <laughs> it's Lee Wanell's The Invisible Man. Um, ah. Le- a a leftover. <laughs> vestigial project from uh, the Universal Dark Universe project of um, interlinked monster movies, which <laughs> died on its ass twice. Wow. Um, yeah. God, that seems like an anachronism now. Yeah. I know. Um, this was you know, long ago going to be a Johnny Depp vehicle. Someone else who um, I, we might have seen the last of for a little while. Uh, I mean, how do you lose a libel case against the sun? Um, but um, Wanell reframes the uh, the concept completely into again an overtly political uh, storyline about toxic relationships and abusive men. It begins with a woman escaping a beautiful palatial home and a clearly controlling husband and uh, going to stay with her sister in the suburbs. She then gets word that her husband has apparently killed himself. And left her a considerable sum of money, but at the same time she finds herself surrounded by strange, unexplained events, which appear to be the actions of someone whom you can't see, whilst others think that she's going crazy. So effectively, uh, she's being gaslit. Um, it it manages to work on the level of both being a very thoughtful, intelligent political story, and also an absolutely edge-of-the-seat thriller. It is absolute perfect tension all the way through. Uh, Wanell's, I think it's only his second, maybe third film as a director, has previously worked in low-budget horror. This one was also low-budget. It was only $7 million, and it does not look even remotely that cheap, um, such as the, the visual style and also the, the digital effects later on when the invisibility effects come in um, but it has strong well drawn characters a, a, an original creative plot that only lifts a few things from the book apart from the basic concept it's it's a really clever film that works on all these different levels I think it's, it's very much a, a contemporary blockbuster in that you can watch it and just enjoy it for being a really great thriller full of action and excitement and tension but also if you look deeper there's so much intelligence and subtext and contemporary concerns it's it's a finely wrought piece of work and it's terrific it's the it's the most recent film i saw in the cinema um 14 months ago oh my god um so I I didn't put this on my list because I have yet to see the end of it. I've got about halfway through it, and I agree with you. I'd love to have seen this in the cinema. Oh my god, 
Um, again, I completely agree with everything you say. I think um, Elizabeth Moss is incredible in this film. She gives yeah. a brilliant performance of being um, uh, traumatised and being terrified of going out. This, and I, I definitely agree with you that um, that it's just a damn good thriller. Um, at the start, I was thinking this is going to be... Um, more of a piece of agitprop. This this is going to be some sort of messagey type film, um, and actually, it's much more of a roller coaster um, uh, thriller. And and the repurposing of it is brilliant. Um, I can't. I how this is part of the 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 universal monster universe is just it beggars belief. It is. It's light years ahead of of the bollocks that. Um, Russell Crowe and Tom Cruise are part of. Um, Chris, have you have you managed to get around to seeing this one yet? No, I mean, can I just query that budget with you? Did you say seven million? Seven. That's yeah. that's pocket change. You can't even get Tom yes. Cruise's foot for that amount. Well, it was. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll, given how the the Dark Universe keep kept failing, they said, "Oh, sod it. We want to do new versions anyway. We've got to deal with Blumhouse. They make horror movies. They know how to do this stuff and make money out of it. We will just give it to them." So they just handed it off to them. They in turn got hold of Lee Whannell, co-creator of the Saw films as well, and he just had this this concept of how to bring it completely up to date in a way that is, I think, true to the the tone of the original book. In fact, even though mm. the book is mm. what nearly 130 years old, mm. but mm-hmm, it, and it mm-hmm. and it fits that, but is completely fresh, a completely original story. It's there's no reason to think that a new Invisible Man movie could possibly be this good. It's maybe mm. the best use of that kind of character since the James Whale film 80 years ago. And yeah. even then that gets by because it's, again, just a good thriller with amazing iconography. It doesn't have the depth this has. Yeah, completely agree. Um, definitely worth a watch that one, Chris. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. You don't, and as I say, you don't even have to think about it while you're watching it. It's just a really good thriller. Mm. But um, it's a it's a great piece of work. I loved it. So number two, um, worst film of the year, is Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, damn, I thought that was going to be your <laughs> now, first. Listener, <sighs> listener, during a brief break just now, Anthony was certain I was going to pick this as worst film of the year. And I'm not because there's one that I really hated. But uh, Wonder, right. Wonder Woman 1984 was a massive disappointment because the, I thought the first film was finally they they got the DC universe right the way they wanted to do it. It had that that darkness to it and that that grimness, but in a in a way that made sense and in a context that made sense. And clearly, uh, Warner said, "Well." Patty Jenkins knows what she's doing. Let's just give her total creative control and just keep throwing money at her. And the result is a total bloody mess. It's a film about a magic rock that grants wishes, uh, which the villain gets hold of and wishes that he could be the rock so people can grant wishes on him. And so when uh, Diana Prince gets the chance, she wishes that her lost love Steve Trevor could come back from the dead, which he does by literally possessing another person whom Diana then sleeps with, effectively raping this guy. Um, the script is totally undisciplined. There's, I think, two or three 
opening sequences, which add almost nothing to the story. The actual plot is a complete mess. The villain is a very obvious Trump analogue. Um, although Pedro Pascal, I think, is the best actor in the film. I think he does a lot to make the character more sympathetic than he would be. Much more of a someone desperately trying to keep his, his house of cards standing. Um, which makes things more interesting because he has more to lose rather than you know, the other story about the, the impending end of the world, which is handled incredibly badly. Um, Kristen Wiig is the supporting villain as the cheater, and initially she wishes that she was more like Diana Prince, and then she gets the second wish from nowhere, um, and the moral of the whole film seems to be be, care- be careful what you wish for, which is something that like a four-year-old learns. Um, a bit like, as we've seen previously in the DC movies, the moral at the end of Man of Steel is that Superman has learned that murder is wrong. Um, the the 1980s setting doesn't work because it's so wildly overplayed. It's like it's based on issues of looking or fashion magazines. It doesn't actually look what the 80s really looked like. It looks like what people think the 80s looked like. And although that's a valid approach for a fantasy film, it just makes everything look like it's a neon garish nightmare and incredibly ugly the opening, the second opening scene which is an action set piece in a shopping centre, which makes no sense because Diana's supposed to have been in hiding for decades although she's apparently just running around in the outside world uh, it, it's, it's weirdly shot and overlit and it's got bits that are funny and bits that, and you know, people about to have their faces blown off and the tone is just a complete mess and nothing connects um there's also stuff about the Cold War, but the the president who we see is clearly meant to be Ronald Reagan, but looks nothing like him. There's a appalling lack of research in the in the script. So Steve Trevor sees an escalator and gets frightened, even though they had escalators twenty years before he was born. Um, the characters don't have any motivation. There are set pieces that don't add anything to the story. Diana suddenly is, develops the ability to turn things invisible which happens once in the film with no introduction, never happens again. We have a legendary warrior who's talked about that adds nothing and doesn't doesn't connect into the film at all so that they can just have a cameo by Linda Carter. The whole thing is such an embarrassing mess. It's it's a disaster. And, <laughs> and it makes the first film look like what it was, which is a total fluke. Um... Patty Jenkins clearly doesn't really know what she's doing at all. And DC is back to where it was, being skipped by me. Well, it makes Monster look like the fluke. Um, her, her writing credit on that um, is the only one prior to this film. Um, I thought that this is, for, for a piece of mainstream blockbuster entertainment... This is certainly the sort of film that uh, is most blatantly pitched at the youngest members of the audience. It's a My Little Pony sort of um, superhero film. Um, and I would say it's possibly good if for very young children. Except, as you've said, there's some really, really... It, I mean, the, the stuff with the, the possession of the guy is... Um, I mean, when you say it out loud, it is obviously objectionable. But even when you're sitting experiencing it in the movie, you just go, this is just incredibly odd. And then they wake up in bed together, and that's when you go, hang on a minute. I mean, 
I think there's something slightly dodgy about this. Um, and then the the Linda. I'm, I'm sorry, Chris, if you if you're gagging to see Wonder Woman 1984, but I'll just have to live with the um, disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> but Jeremy's already blown the fact that there's a Linda Carter cameo at the moment, and it is totally in tune with the film in that it is a camp winky winky piece of nonsense. And I thought, yeah, this is. You want to make the 70s Wonder Woman series. You cannot get out of the shadow of that. And short of having Gal Gadot's turn spinning around in a circle, which I really wanted her to do, um, it's it's too long. It's it's juvenile thinking. You just end up thinking, did, did sentient adults actually come up with this? Um, and yet, about 12, 6 months beforehand, Jeremy, we were sitting where I'm sitting right now, and we were comparing and contrasting the trailers for Black Widow and Wonder Woman 1984, and we said, Wonder Woman 1984 looks great. I, Boy, were we wrong. <laughs> I, I maintain that the uh, remixed version of Blue Monday used in the trailer is a really mm. great piece of music. It's, it's, oh, it is, it's yeah. a great sort of electronic orchestral version of the song. It sounds fantastic, mm. and I've listened to it a lot. But if a man had directed... Skeptical as I am over Black Widow, I think, well, it, it's not going to be worse than this. No, it's not. It cannot cannot possibly be worse. If a man had directed Wonder Woman 1984, it would be accused of misogyny, particularly with regards to the Christine uh, Week yeah. character before she yeah. goes, I, I want to be so like... Um, she's playing the bumbling... Um, you know, um, the bumbling Michelle Pfeiffer it's, plays... It's such a stereotype. Mm. And it's such a lazy it is. stereotype. And yeah, uh, um, you mean do you mean Michelle Pfeiffer in Batman Returns? In Batman Returns, yeah. Except even then, the character is, it's it's she's not, she's not klutzy. She's downtrodden. She's quite a sad character. She's not, you know, and it tri- digs tri- 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 into her life, over, tripping over her high heels and that kind of thing. It's not as it's yeah. not as lazy as that. It's much more to try to make her believable and make the audience like her and care about her. Yeah, and the way Catwoman is written makes her much more of an interesting anti-hero rather than just like a weird trajectory-free. I don't know. Mm. And the odd thing is, I've it's, seen Kristen it... Wiig in in straight roles. She was in Darren Aronofsky's Mother in a supporting role, and she was She's very in, she, she was very good in that. Really, quite frightening. She's, she's in The Martian. Comic. She's yes. she plays one of the. Um, mm. She plays one of the um, Mission Control yes. staff in The Martian. And she's um, a great comic performer. I mean, watch her. Yeah, she's good in Bridesmaids. And uh, a lot of her work on Saturday Night Live. She's a great sketch mm-hmm. performer. Um, and I thought, well, oh, you wanted me to be the villain in a new superhero movie. Oh, okay, that would be fun. Yeah, it probably was. But the film's terrible. So a lot has been said about Gal Gadot's acting. And um, that Wonder Woman 1984 requires her to emote, and um, I've been I've been on the fence with regards to to her um, her acting, and the moment that I went, mm, this really needs someone like Ian McKellen to be narrating this, occurs in the extended Justice League, where Gal Gadot is given a huge ream of exposition to. Um, to deliver over footage of the usual Zack Snyder um, uh, posturing machismo uh, backstory, and after about a minute of her um, her intoning this this gobbledygook, you just think, look, h- hire someone 
like Ian McKellen to deliver this. You you need someone whose voice is ultra charismatic and listenable. If you're gonna put this on as not Gal Gadot, who has no emotional inflection in her voice all the time. They you know, they've they've got Jeremy Irons right there. Very true, yeah. Yeah. So uh, and and a sto- it, it, it's worth seeing to to be a witness to this film. <laughs> <laughs> to say that you were there. <laughs> yes. Just to to um, just to witness it. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. I want to give this film a pass. I want to say, look, it's for children. But there's just really, really odd and at times objectionable decisions in it. And also there's some issues about the, uh, uh, the politics of sending an Israeli actress and depicting a wall being built in along the Gaza Strip and, yeah. uh, and all I of mean, this. I, I'm, in the last few it, days uh, as well... <sighs> With, with everything going yeah. on now, and also the statement that she made that was yes. the worst kind of both sidesism. Yeah, um, she she can be well intentioned but tone deaf. Um, she did a little video during the pandemic as well, which didn't get out well. Mm. Um, but in the film itself, I I'm not uh, an authority on this, but it is politically very very dubious. Um, and you just think, what, was anybody awake in the writers' room? Was I don't anybody? Think so. I don't think so I don't, either. I don't think enough. I think that if they'd actually thought through what they were doing, this wouldn't have happened. But they just never gave it no. enough thought. Yeah, I think they, they obviously started production before the the, the script was locked, and they were oh, screw oh, it, yeah. you know, just put any old shit down. Even even aside all the objectionable stuff, that just the film just flat out doesn't make any sense, and it's got a magic rock that grants wishes. <laughs> so the number three film of the year, uh, back to something that's good, and a big contender at the Oscars that I was quite surprised didn't win anything. Oh no, it did win something, I'll tell a lie. Sound of Metal. Oh. Um, Riz Ahmed plays a uh, rock drummer named Ruben in a band with his girlfriend who suddenly discovers that he is losing his hearing very quickly. And he tries to seek solutions to this that also connect to his own past as a recovering drug addict. Um, It's a study of his character and his response to this crisis. He has two paths ahead of him. The possibility that he can restore at least some of his hearing, or that he adjusts to his new life as a deaf man. And as he goes through this process, he experiences the stages of grief in losing this sense and in trying to adapt to a new environment. Um, Early on, he joins a special commune, a a church-sponsored commune. It's said that he's concerned about it being church-sponsored. He says, oh no, they they give us the money, but we run ourselves. For um, deaf recovering addicts. And while he's there, he's able to learn to adjust, learn to live with these other people who have all been through very similar situations as him, start to learn um, American Sign Language. The film is... uh, The film won the Oscar for Best Sound, and it's really interesting to compare it with Tenet, because while that film was apparently edited by an actual deaf person... um, That's a cheap joke. Sorry. Uh, But this film is told through its use of sound we often go into uh, Ruben's headspace and have that total lack of sound shown to us. There are scenes where um, he's sitting at a table 
with other people in the commune, and they're all uh, chatting away very happily, signing. But Reuben, who doesn't understand any sign language, uh, is just sitting there in silence. And it's to and to him and to us, we don't understand this environment. As he gradually starts to learn some signs and make himself understood, we get subtitles on screen so that the audience becomes part of that world as well, and we experience this understanding and this uh, gradual ability to interface with the world through his changed circumstances. Um, it has excellent supporting performances. Paul Racy, who's this little-known character actor as the head of the commune, I thought was terrific, a very believable, very um, empathetic character who's very sort of tough love and no-nonsense and an interesting choice to have that deaf character played by a hearing actor because they needed someone who um, was not, I think, not deaf from birth because he speaks clearly, but Bracey was actually raised by deaf parents, so he's fluent in sign language. Um, but the, the whole thing is made by Ahmed's central performance. He, I think, should have won Best Actor at the Oscars. He is totally committed to the role he learned sign language, he learned drumming he spent a better part of a year preparing for this and he is never not 100% believable as Ruben goes through this massive change in his life this complete upending of everything that is important to him and that is pushing him towards re-establishing older negative patterns of behaviour and pushing him back towards his addiction it's a very compassionate and humane story told through the whole gamut of filmmaking techniques but nevertheless done with subtlety and sensitivity. I thought it was fantastic. Excellent. That's another one to be watched. Okay, number two, film of the year. And this one does meet your remit for being something upbeat and positive. Ooh. Superficially, I think some people dismiss this as a knockoff of Groundhog Day because it is another romantic uh, comedy about uh, being trapped in a time loop. On this occasion, it stars Andy Samberg as Niles, who is at a wedding in Palm Springs where his girlfriend is one of the bridesmaids. But the film joins him when he's already been in the loop for so long that he's forgotten what he does for a living. And he spends his time, having made peace with the fact that he's trapped there forever, wasting time, enjoying himself, showing up for the wedding in Hawaiian shirt and shorts, and occasionally seducing people just to pass the time. However, eventually this goes wrong when uh, one of the bridesmaids follows him to a weird, mysterious cave and gets sucked inside, and uh, she finds herself part of the loop as well. So she goes through the same adjustment to being trapped in this environment and deciding to live in the moment with Niles. Whilst also there is in the distance a third person who is also trapped in the loop, uh, played by J.K. Simmons, um, who wakes up every morning at his family home in Los Angeles and occasionally will travel out to Palm Springs to capture Niles and torture him, uh, knowing that he'll wake up the following morning absolutely unhurt. So the film is about this conflict between staying safe in your cocoon where nothing can ever hurt you and breaking out into the world and 
living your life rather than just continuing to exist. And it's reflected in the relationship between the two main characters. There's fantastic chemistry between Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti uh, that makes their relationship totally believable. And on a thematic level, the guilt that Niles feels from keeping people in this environment and, and trapping, having ac accidentally trapped people there is, in, is embodied by uh, that distant character. It comes up with a load of very creative, clever ideas for how to use the time loop environment and even uh, has some uh, nods towards how this is a more complex phenomenon by one scene where they're one they go camping in the desert one night and see far in the distance dinosaurs walking across the horizon and it's left ambiguous as to whether or not that's a function of the time loop or a byproduct of the magic mushrooms they've taken <laughs> um, the film was not intended in this way but it has wound up almost becoming a reflection of the current situation of how people might readjust to life after lockdown of staying safe in their cocoons or going out into the world and taking risks but informed risks and embracing what life has to offer um, it's a very positive upbeat film I feel um, cleverly written nicely directed really well acted and hugely creative I really really liked it excellent yeah, I, I this definitely sounds up my street. I hope you haven't completely spoiled it, but no, um, good. Um, uh, that's yeah. currently an Amazon Prime exclusive. I don't know if that's going to change, but um, but there you are. So the worst film of the year. Here we go. Hmm. Um, okay, it was one Let that me I strapped myself in. Okay, put on your special tabard. <laughs> um, it's one that I watched relatively early uh, in the year I at the time I decided it was probably going to be my worst film of the year and it turns out that I was right it's also a film that I have seen almost no discussion of anywhere else it's called Vivarium and it's All right. uh, an Irish production directed by Lorcan Finnegan and starring um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Imogen Poots it's about a couple who are uh, planning on buying their first home and they uh, meet with an estate agent who takes them out to this housing estate and it's all very cookie cutter and all the houses look the same and it's all very planned and laid out and as they're looking around the house suddenly the estate agent vanishes and somewhat unimpressed they decide to leave but they find they're trapped in this environment they're trapped in this estate and they keep driving until they run out of petrol and they find themselves back in front of the house again. And in despair of trying to get away, they climb the roof, the estate reaches to the horizon, they set fire to the house, and the following morning, not only has the house rebuilt itself, but there's a box on the front step, and inside is a baby, with a note saying that if they raise the child, they will be able to leave. Um, it is a student film made by a 12-year-old. It is the most egregious and childish adolescent almost Chibnillian allegory <laughs> for suburban living 
it wears out its welcome after less than half an hour, and that's really all it would merit as a, a Twilight Zone type story. But it goes out of its way to make its point so bluntly and repeatedly, and in such a smug, self-satisfied fashion. There's footage in the opening credits of a cuckoo in the nest, which is obviously connected to the baby. And as the, the child grows up far too quickly than is normal for a human baby, um, it's, it talks in this uh, shrieking jabber, and uh, on television it watches these weird patterns flickering around as though parents don't understand their children anymore with their smartphones and their ringtones and it, it ne this, this whole idea never feels like a real environment it never feels like the audience should be invested in this because it's so obviously fake and phony and representative of something um, Eisenberg's character decides that he's going to start digging a hole as a means of escape but that's just a very obvious metaphor for the idea of work that he's working at this constantly and it is immediately obvious that he's also digging his own grave. Eisenberg is totally miscast because he's far too limited for this sort of thing. He's just playing Mark Zuckerberg and everything now because that's his character type and he doesn't seem to be able to break out beyond that. It's, it's such a childish film made by people who think that they're saying something incredibly nuanced and profound and insightful but really reaching the same conclusion that most do when they're about 15. Um, I'm surprised that adults made this. It's, it's just really pathetic and childish and poorly thought out and just a waste of everyone's time, and I hate it. It sounds great. <laughs> and it's shit. Oh. Um, we are, we're not still talking about Wonder Woman, I take it. Um... It, this is ringing, um, ringing bells and putting me in mind of a film called The Box, which is um, the one, the what, the one about the button. Yeah, yeah. That, so lifted out of, of that's totally that different. Was lifted, and, and that is based on the Twilight Zone episode. Yes, it is, and and unfortunately, it's done, isn't it? Um, directed by the Donnie Darko guy. Which um, yes, it's yeah. His, it's yeah, yeah. One film that I actually liked. Yeah. Um, so, but it's it's that Twilight Zone concept, which is a great concept, but then spun out for ninety minutes to two hours. Um, so it, it kind of meanders off into slightly less interesting places. The original Twilight Zone is is great, um, but yeah, I'm getting Twilight Zone vibes off this. It's really Twilight Zone, which is not a yeah. bad thing. No, but it just. But Twilight it... Zones were twenty five minutes long. Yeah, I think they did a season where they were an hour. But classically, yeah, yeah that 25 minute, mm. entirely self-contained and perfectly paced. Fine, if that's what it should be. If this was still 25, if this were 25 minutes long, it would still feel really obvious and lazy. But as a feature film, it's obvious and lazy and three times longer than it needs to be. Battering you over the head with its dull bum-witted metaphors about oh, like, suburban living is like death, man. And, Am I? And it's, it's, it's just so stupid. It actively annoyed me in a way that even Wonder Woman 1984 didn't. At least, at least that was nuts. 
This doesn't even have the good grace to go insane. It's just stupid and boring and lazy and thick. Am I trapped in a time loop or something? Isn't there a film called Suburbicon or something, which is all about how ghastly the suburbs are and it's a metaphor for how awful the lives of people that don't make films are or something? That sounds vaguely familiar, but that's that doesn't have any kind of sort of Twilight Zone fantastical element. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, wasn't that a Joel Cohen? Maybe I just Cohen brothers' attachment to that. um, Maybe I think that was a George Clooney film. George Clooney directed. um, uh, Matt Damon was in it. Hmm. Oh, it's still the one with being chased by people in hats, is it? No, oh, well, that's, that's the... That's the uh, oh, which is, <laughs> which is very yeah. Twilight Zone, but that's something totally yeah. different. Yeah. Well, this is one not to watch, obviously. Yeah, um, God, God. That, um, oh, it, it just annoyed me. If only it had a magic rock in it that granted wishes. <laughs> but, but remember... I'm having trouble deciding... Uh, Don't all talk at once. Oh. What are you, teacher? Anthony, <laughs> I, want to hear, I want to hear what you're saying, but not at the same time. Anthony, what would you just say? I was just saying I'm, I'm struggling to decide which I like best. Your um, reviews of films that you hated or the reviews of films that you really liked. Um, it's neck and neck. I, I would hope say. that it's films that I like because there's so much more to be gained from positivity. Well, indeed, yes. But I do like to see you having a meltdown. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think there were any films this year that I found sort of actively offensive in and of themselves. I think the the whole like the historical fabrication element mm. really annoys mm. me. But I don't think it's it doesn't get to me the same way that something like Kingsman: The Secret Service did, where I felt yeah, physically yeah. sick after leaving the cinema. Anyway, best film of the year, and this drum is drum roll. Again, this is one that I haven't really seen much talk about. Um, it's written and directed by Carlo Mirabella Davis, and it's called Swallow. Um, what was that, Anthony? I've very, got absolutely no idea what this film series is. Of facial expressions. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I've not heard of this one at all. It's about a young woman played by Haley Bennett who was recently married into quite a wealthy family. Her husband is some big noise on Wall Street or other and lives in a, a beautifully designed, a, a very designed house in the uh, outskirts of New York. And she's recently discovered that she's pregnant. But the nature of her environment, this very controlled uh, house which she doesn't do anything to maintain uh, the family she's married into which is again very wealthy and very constricting the the pressure of this environment causes her to develop a, a real life psychological disorder called pica which means that she begins to eat items which are inedible um, specifically to begin with marbles or thumbtacks or small items like that and the story follows the development of her condition and the response of her husband and her family as they become aware of what's happening uh, as a depiction of mental illness and the responses to it from people who are 
much more concerned with appearance rather than assisting people in trouble or in pain. I thought this was superb. The house is designed to be like this perfect mink-lined glass prison. There are beautiful views out over the countryside. You can see the Hudson River stretching off into the distance, promising escape and freedom, but you're locked inside this glass and chrome cage. The film touches on issues of stigmatisation and the way environmental factors and outside influences impact uh, mental health, and also how a family seeking a quick fix will not tolerate on deviations from the norms. They are so focused on um, wanting to present the appropriate front, the, the right uh, environment, that it perpetuates itself. These, these deep-seated issues only continue the cycle of almost abuse in creating psychological problems and allowing them to fester. Um, in this way, I thought it was quite reminiscent of some of Todd Haynes' earlier films, particularly Safe, covered on the podcast before, about a woman who becomes allergic to her own 20th century environment and winds up having to live out in the desert away from any kind of uh, normal influences. But the film's tone and style shift gradually as the main character starts to resolve the issues impacting her. The the visual style becomes a little less formal and a little more loose. The um, Even the costume design changes and the way characters dress shifts more in a, in a, in a way to just illustrate slight internal changes. A lot of the film, again, requires the audience to connect directly in empathic terms with um, only the explanation you actually need. I mean, the, the condition itself is named and the, the, the broad symptoms are explained to the audience as, as it is to her family when she sees a doctor. So essential information is given out. But the underlying elements of, of the condition and the main characters suffering from it are there for the audience to connect. The music, I thought, was superb. It, it uh, reminded me of um, some of Jerry Goldsmith's music from uh, his more atonal work, like his Planet of the Apes films, I think. And combining that with, with pop music to be uh, an indication of more superficial elements. And something that I really like particularly and really stayed with me is the film's final shot. Um, without spoiling or anything, the final shot is uh, in a women's public bathroom in a shopping centre. And we see as the credits run, women coming in, going into the stalls, coming out, washing their hands and checking themselves in the mirror, adjusting their clothing and what have you, doing whatever women do in bathrooms. But the inference is every single woman that we see here has their own story, their own history of whatever it is that they're dealing with. And this happens over and over again. All these women coming backwards and forwards, just an ordinary day for many of them, just going into the bathroom for whatever reason but everyone has a story and this is happening over and over again I thought it was a perfectly produced film I don't think there's anything about it that I'm able to reasonably criticise it is perfectly directed, perfectly acted perfectly written it, it, it struck such a resonant chord in me I really liked it and I, and I think unreservedly it is the best film of the year
Well, I don't. I I haven't seen it. Um, that's an excellent recommendation. It's not um, very well. It hasn't really made that much of an impact, which I thought was disappointing. Uh, um, but yeah, it's it's an amazing piece of work. I loved it. So the the films this year, particularly you know, the ones that we've discussed, this, apart from the outliers like Tenet and and Wonder Woman and all of that, that we, which have been very disappointing, the, we've definitely discussed a much more eclectic series of films this year, um, necessarily because of the way things have gone. But also, I do think it's pro- that's probably going to be the way uh, things go. Maybe, maybe in twelve months' time, it'll be uh, we'll be talking lots more about the. The, the blockbuster onslaught that we're about to get in um, across the next year, but actually, with regards to the rise of of streaming services and the way the distribution model's changing, I think that we're probably going to be talking about more eclectic films, um, which is a good thing, obviously. Anything to Sermon happens? over. <laughs> Hello, Jeremy. Hello. <laughs> I was waiting for Chris to say something. Oh, I have, I have, I have nothing uh, m- uh, meaningful of any consequence to add. <laughs> oh, that, oh, that's not true. But are we due? Are we due a glut of um, two years worth of blockbusters crammed into one summer? Then, well, um, it's it's going to be a bloodbath because all of last year's blockbusters almost all of them, and all of this year's blockbusters are going to be rammed into about six months between um, July-ish and Christmas. And although for us viewers that's quite exciting because we're going to see all the new Marvel films and the new Bond film and a good DC film possibly with uh, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, and this is all quite exciting for us, a lot of these films are going to fail. Because mm. there is just going to be so much product, stuff's going to get squeezed out, and that, and even on a practical level, there will not be enough room in cinemas to show all the films that they think might make money. Smaller films are just going to go straight to streaming. Mm. Um, I have a list I've already prepared of fifty-one films worth seeing during twenty twenty-one. I couldn't find a fifty-second one. So I'll just zip through them quickly and stop me if any catch your attention. The Amusement Park, Another Round, The Beatles, Get Back, Black Widow. Oh, yeah, no, no, sorry, that's definitely one I'm looking forward to, and that's probably one that's going to be worth a trip to the cinema to see, I would have thought. Because that's Peter Jackson, isn't it? Yes, it's, yeah. it's effectively a remix of Let It Be. Mm. Going back to the original raw footage and re-editing it to create a, an apparently more authentic portrayal of uh, the band's last album. Um, Black Widow, Blonde, Bob's Burgers the movie, Chaos Walking, <laughs> Coming to America, Dune, mm. Eternals, The Father, Final Cut, First Cow, The French Dispatch, French Exit, Ghostbusters Afterlife, Godzilla vs. Kong, the Green Knight, Halloween Kills, House of Gucci, In the Earth, In the Heights, Jackass, Jumbo, The Last Duel, Last Night in Soho, The Matrix Resurrections, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, Munich, The Nest, Next Goal Wins, No Time to Die, 
Nobody, Nomadland. Oh, the Northman is still on this list. It's actually been put back to 2022, sorry. Oxygen, A Quiet Place Part 2, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, Soggy Bottom, Spider-Man No Way Home, Spiral from the Book of Saw, Stowaway, The Suicide Squad, Supernova, Tetris, 3,000 Years of Longing, The Tragedy of Macbeth, Venom Let There Be Carnage, West Side Story, Where Do You Go Bernadette, and the untitled Sherlock Holmes sequel. Uh, yeah. Well, the one that leaps off that list for me is The Green Knight, which I saw the trailer for um, uh, this week, uh, which looks very interesting. Mm. And I can't, I don't quite understand what's going on in it, but uh, um, I, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And, um, and there's various other bits and pieces on there, which are obviously interesting. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a loss of content to say mm. the least. I mean, one that's I'm I'm really excited about is the amusement park, which is a lost, unreleased George Romero film from 1972. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just about feature length at 53 minutes. It was supposed to be a public information film about ageism. But um, <laughs> but when Romero came back with the film, it was a, a feature length surreal horror about um, uh, an old man trapped in a surreal amusement park, um, and apparently it is emblematic of his his earlier more sort of rough and ready films, and far from the work for hire that people thought. And I'm ambivalent about Dune. I. I obviously want to go and see it on a huge screen so I can feast my eyes on a nice prime piece of, of SF and one which is probably quite in tune with the the, 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 um, the zeitgeist with regards to climate change and all of that whether it's actually going to get a part two is I really debatable I, th- uh, I know, I, think, I wonder I think, I think Dune's going to be one of the big casualties I reckon there's a chance that it, it might bomb. Also, I'm not sold on Timothy What's-His-Face's uh, Paul Atreides. Um, he was horrible in the Woody Allen film that I saw. Um, uh, but it's a, a big piece of sci-fi, so... Yeah. Um, and I, I have to say, I haven't been... I know uh, people love Arrival, um, and some people like Blade Runner Part 2, um, but I've... Th- uh, his other films have wowed me more, but this is a passion project for him, so who knows? Um, it's it's certainly going to lack the David Lynchian weirdness, um, mm. but um, but we'll see. Uh, Bond, obviously, you're looking forward to. I I have a hunch that the villain's big plan is probably going to be accidentally in tune with what we've all just been through. Um, it, if you get my meaning, it's certainly inferred in the trailers that it is cl- classically apocalyptic. Yes. Um, yeah. So we'll see. I mean, hopefully, it's not going to be anything that's going to be too close to real life because we don't really want that necessarily in a <coughs> Bond film. Um, yeah, I'm also hoping they're going to use one of the few unused sequences from. Um, from the books, which is the Garden of Death, I think there's there's oh, a take on that. I thought it was going to be uh, Bond um, fighting a giant squid. 
Uh, I'd love to see that. Uh, on Daniel Craig finally embracing Gonzo uh, fantasy in a Bond film. I'd love to see that. But also, I'm looking forward to the end of the Daniel Craig era. Um, I'm, I'm hungry for a, a new take now. Um, I think it's going to be a good few years before we see the next Bond. Um, mm, it might be. Although I will the funny say, thing is that um, Eon tried launching a new franchise at the beginning of last year. Yes, um, they did. A, uh, a, sort of a female-led action-adventure mm. film called The Rhythm Section, which was a, another massive bomb b- before films were actively bombing because of COVID. Um, so th- every, every time they try and do something outside Bond, it normally fails. Yes. I think the only exception was Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a surprise, um, but um, I think that obviously the next Bond's going to be much younger. I think that's pretty much given. Um, oh, absolutely. Um, Aiden Turner. And I'll, well, I'll be fascinated to see which way they they go with it. Um, I just hope they don't mess it up. They need to go back to um, a good Bond, like maybe someone from Ireland. Who shall remain nameless? No, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> some of the some of the ones on the list I'm particularly looking forward to are um, Blonde, um, which is um, a, a fictionalized adaptation, a fictionalized biography rather, of Marilyn Monroe. Oh yes, and that's the Anna Armas, written and directed by you. Andrew Dominic uh, of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Uh, and that's something that's been in the works for a very long time. Um, Next Goal Wins, uh, the new film from Taika Waititi, about the American Samoan football team trying to overturn their 20-year record of losses, and based on a documentary. Um, Soggy Bottom, the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing. Uh, Joel Cohen making his first solo film with uh, a version of Macbeth. Starring um, Denzel oh, yeah. Washington. Do you think we'll see Scorsese's next project uh, within the next twelve months? The Killers of the Flower, Killers of the Flower Moon. Moon. Not in twenty twenty one. It's a bit I, early for I, that. I, isn't just, it? I just don't think it'll be ready. Um, no. But also, apparently, that's going straight to Apple. Hmm. Okay. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, and on, on top of everything else, this Christmas, <laughs> two major films are looking forward to this Christmas. The new Spider-Man film, where it's going to get real weird, and The Matrix Part Four, <laughs> because I'm, I'm oh yeah, I'm I intrigued know. to know what a Matrix film from the you know co-written by the author of Cloud Atlas is going to look like, because they've actually got David Robert Mitchell to co-write the script. Mm. So that could be quite something. Yeah, I didn't. I like the first Matrix-ish. Second one, third one, didn't like them very much. Um, can't say I'm running to the cinema to see an aged um, Keanu Reeves become Neo. Keanu Reeves has age. The ageless Keanu Reeves. Any any other thoughts from you, Chris? Uh, not really, unsurprisingly. I mean, the there's obviously some stuff there that sounds interesting. The one, frankly, that stands out for me is Tetris, because... You kind of you are. It's, it's the classic example of a film. We think, okay, how are you possibly going to make that work? 
Uh, I mean, the actual story of how the game was written in terms of it being a creation of the Soviet Union is really interesting, yeah. but my understanding is it's a dramatisation of the game. Uh, well, apparently, from what I've read, it is a dramatisation of how the game was created. Oh, thank so... God for that. I must have been reading a sarcastic article. Then. Yeah, I think but, you, but we live in a, a, a world where Adam Sandler appeared in Pixels, so it's entirely mm. possible someone might have gone, let's stick Adam Sandler in Tetris and have him have the blocks falling from the sky. No, this is, um, this is a, a film from the director of uh, Stan and Ollie. And I think it's much more of a character-based oh. drama. Yeah, okay, that makes well, yeah. a lot more sense than my it, version. It, it really is an interesting story, so mm. I'd, I'd be um, I'd be up for that. And of course, we've got two Ridley Scott films coming. Oh, um, House of Gucci and The Last Duel. Oh, oh yeah, um, because he cannot mm. be stopped. He's a machine. He's uh, it's extraordinary. Mm. He is. I mean, it's beggar's belief. I I'm not gonna um, pass judgment on those before I see them because he he has a habit of um, the bed. doing interesting things. Y- yeah. Um, Is he I not mean, making any more terrible alien films this year? Then. Well, that's it. I mean, he that was a surprise, wasn't it? Um, I hope he doesn't. To be honest with you, <laughs> I hope he stays far away from that. Um, but yeah, who knows? It could be uh, um, some interesting stuff. I mean, the last duel particularly sounds quite interesting. Might be an interesting career capper for him as well, actually. So, with all that in mind and all this excitement ahead, I think we've got a certainly a very interesting year of film ahead, and I look forward <laughs> to seeing one or more of you actually in person and actually in a cinema. Mm. It would be a delight. It would be a great um, relief, a cathartic experience, in fact. Um, huge buckets of popcorn, um, great big vats of Coke, um, comfortable seats, 3D for Jeremy because he loves it so much. You're, just, um, you're naming things I hate. I don't like popcorn. <laughs> He's a bit of a purist, I know. It should I'm, be a cathedral. I'm not a, I'm not a purist, I just hate popcorn. It's yeah, horrible. I know. It's like eating polystyrene. We'll get you some marshmallows or a lollipop. <laughs> it's, it's revel. It's, no, we, we, it's, it's revels or nothing. Well, we really must see a film in the bloody cinema um, because this is a cinema podcast. It would be quite nice to assist in the maintenance of the medium. <laughs> Thanks to both Anthony and Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast with over 90 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, why not make a wish on a magic rock? listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.